Hey guys, Otaku Nate here. Yes, this is my longest episode yet, where we ramble for three hours and change about Godanner, one of the best mecha anime from the 2000s. But if the review isn't enough to whet your appetite, then don't worry because we got more coming as I recorded an interview with Tiffany Grant, and you can expect that to come out later this week where we talk about her time doing voice acting for Godanner. Also, I am going to be at Anime Week in Atlanta this week at the Waverly Hotel and Convention Center on the outskirts of Atlanta, Georgia, where I will be hosting three panels. Getting your friends and family into anime, the do's and don'ts, on Friday at 9.15 a.m. Then on Friday night at 8.45, I'm hosting You Can't Do That on Japanese Television. That's a panel all about the censorship of anime on Japanese television in Japan. And on Saturday afternoon, I am hosting my Symphogear panel, and I'm hoping to Symphopill a lot of newcomers to there. I hope to see you all there, and hopefully we can all have a good time together. The following podcast is devoted to the loving memories of voice actor Chris Ayers, composer Chumei Watanabe, character designer Takahiro Kimura, and everybody's favorite Aniki, Ichiro Mizuki. May they rest in peace, and may they find salvation in God's kingdom. And now, on with the show. This is the Otaku Nate Show, episode 40. Go Danner! Super Robot Romance. What is up, anime fans? Otaku Nate here with another installment of the Otaku Nate Show. The anime podcast where we talk about anime that we want to talk about. Joining me this week is Bronx Kuma. Hey, it's good to be back. Always good to have you on, Bronx. And this week, we're going to be talking about a show that is very near and dear to my heart. And that is a show called Shinkon Gatai Godana. Or if you speak English... Marriage of God and Soul, Godanner. Or, put simply, Godanner. The show was released in 2003 as a collaboration between AIC, OLM, and Asta. The show was directed by Yashika Nagaoka. He's most famous for being the director of both Crest and Banner of the Stars. But you wouldn't know that based on the rest of his filmography because he kind of had a knack for directing wacky comedies, including things like Idol Project, the rather reviled Wild Cards, and most significantly, and this will probably play into his direction for Godanner, he directed New Cutie Honey. Yeah, that's very evident based on the way the show is run. As for who wrote the show, well... If you're going to write a mecha anime, you got to have somebody with a mecha background. And they were able to reel in a big fish. Hiroyuki Kawasaki was the head writer on this project. 
The most famous mecha anime that he wrote, at least one that he was involved as a head writer, was After War Gundam X. He was also writer for the Brave series, writing Brave Police J. Decker and Brave of Gold Goldran. He wrote several of the Sakura Wars OVAs, and he was also the head writer of Irresponsible Captain Tyler. That answers a lot of stylistic questions about this show, too. Wow. That makes a lot of sense. Yep. Almost makes you forget that he wrote Mouse. I don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about it either. So, do you want to give the premise for Godanner, or do you want me to? You know, why don't you? All I right. usually give the premise when I'm with you, so why don't you do it this time? You know what? Considering that for the 20th episode I did the Full Metal Panic summary... I'll do it myself for Godanner. The premise behind Godanner is that in the distant future, Earth has come under attack by a race of kaiju called the Mimetic Beasts. The armies of Earth try their best to fend them off, but conventional weapons are ineffective against their assault. And, in traditional super robot fashion, the various governments of Earth build giant robots to fight them off. At the height of the conflict, we focus on a robot pilot by the name of Go Saruwatari, who, in the heat of battle, saves a young girl by the name of Ana Aoi from certain death against the mimetic beasts. Flash forward five years later, and as if united by fate, these two tie the knot and get married. However, during their marriage, Japan falls under attack by the mimetic beasts yet again, and Go ultimately leaves the ceremony with Anna in hot pursuit. However, Anna, while chasing Go, falls victim to one of the mimetic beast's attacks, which sends her plummeting into a cave beneath the chapel, where she discovers a giant robot. She, of course, gets in the robot and joins Go on the battlefield, where the two now fight side by side, as a married couple against the mimetic beasts. And that is only the bare bones of the premise. So much stuff happens in that first episode that, oh my god, it would take me 20 minutes just to summarize it, but I think I did yeah. a good job summing up the basics. I think you did. Uh, and I think that sort of leads into, I think, one of the things I really appreciate most about the show and i'm sure we'll get more into this as we break down the show segment by segment you know a lot of people talk about like the three episode rule with anime you want to give a show a bit of a chance to convince you to stick with it as it stay tells its story godetter does not need those three episodes it hits you it hits you hard and its sense of visual storytelling and impact is, it is breathtaking. Well, Godanner does have a solid first three episodes, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So, Bronx, where did you first hear of Godanner, and what were your initial impressions of it? So, I remember when I was younger, um, back when... New Type magazine um, made its way overseas, and there was like an American print of it. Uh, I remember seeing uh, ads for Godanner in the magazine, but I never really taken the time to watch it. I did not watch it until the quarantine, um, and at that time, 
my wife and I were looking for things to watch, and my wife being quite the otaku herself, uh, in fact, she's quite a figure collector. Um, she has a rather large collection. I'm looking at it right now. Um, she had suggested uh, a show to me after we had finished watching uh, both Code Geass and Full Metal Alchemist. And she had mentioned having a really strong nostalgia for this show. And it was called Godanner. So I was like, okay, we'll give it a watch. And so when I first started watching it, um, admittedly, I was a little... I wouldn't say taken aback, but I, I, it was... There are parts of Godanner that are silly, and I think part of me was a bit more amused by the silliness of Godanner uh, and how over-the-top it was, as opposed to just sitting down and taking Godanner is for what it was. But when you had asked me again if I would be interested in watching this, I decided to re-watch it not only to refresh my memory, but to also really sort of take in what it was uh, my wife really loved about the show, and especially because at this point, in our relationship, when we first watched it, although we were a couple, we had not gotten married. At this point, it was, when you'd asked me to watch it so that way I could review it with you, my wife and I had just had our first anniversary. Uh, and so taking Godanner in um, post-marriage and sort of really watching it from the perspective of somebody who's made this commitment to a partner now, um, yeah, it hit different. And I really understood why my wife really resonated with it. Um, it was to the point where I even asked her, you know, did she want me to maybe ask you to be on the show with us? Because she has a lot of nostalgia for the show. Yeah, that love and nostalgia she has for the show, uh, as well as like the new perspective I have on it post marriage. Yeah, Goldener, Goldener hits different, and it hits in just the right ways. You know, you talked about how you first heard of Goldener from New Type USA. Your story with Goldener is not that dissimilar from mine. Tell. So my encounter with Godanner, I got New Type USA back in the day, and I also got Anime Insider, which was put out by Wizards of the Coast. Yes, I remember Anime Insider. I loved that magazine, too. It was a subsidiary of Wizard Magazine, and if one of its former writers are to be believed, it actually outsold Wizard Magazine most months. I actually could believe that, considering when Anime Insider was, like, peak publishing and some of the articles that they put out. Yeah, I could definitely see it outselling both, you know, Wizards as well as Inquest, which was their gaming, tabletop gaming magazine, so. I actually remember buying issues of Anime Insider at the old AMP in Midland Park. Damn, I haven't heard of AMP in a while. Y'all still have AMP out in Jersey? Uh, no, they went bankrupt and now Acme has taken their place. Ah, uh, okay. All the AMPs in the Bronx got taken over by Stop and Shop. Yeah, sadly, we do not sell rocket-powered roller skates, jetpacks, or nitroglycerin. <laughs> I remember getting the issue of Anime Insider. I believe it was September 2005. Final Fantasy Advent Children was on the cover. And the first thing I see when I open up the front cover was an advertisement for Godanner. And it was laid out 
like a board game or like a comic panel where it basically just gives you the entire premise of the show in each panel featuring models of the characters. And the first thing that caught my eye was, damn, the breasts on these girls are massive. Like, yeah. <laughs> keep in mind, the level of fan service in anime I had seen at the time was, like, nudity in Inuyasha. And those girls are <clears throat> realistically proportioned, shall we say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A few pages later in that same issue, Anime Insider had this column that was meant to hype up upcoming releases that was simply called... Five reasons we think you'll love, insert whatever show is coming out here. I can't remember what other shows they did, but some that I can recall are Law of Ueki, La Portrait des Petites Cosettes, that's uh, the horror anime written by Genorabuchi, and I think they did My Hime, but I don't know if they did or not. But anyway, surely enough, that list, which was written by Rob Bricken, gave five reasons we think you'll love Godanner, and I remember looking through the list, and sure enough, that article got me interested in Godanner. A few weeks later, after one of my brother's hockey practices in Wayne, we stopped at an FYE at the Preakness Shopping Center, which is not there anymore, the FYE, I should say, and I see in, like, their anime section in the used bin, the first volume of Godanner. And I said, huh, well, Anime Insider's been hyping this show up, and Rob Bricken really seems to like it. So, I'll buy the DVD, I'll give it a watch, and see what's going on. So, we get home, and surely enough, I have to do this at night, because, you know, I'm afraid my parents are going to come in on me at any second. I'm doing this in high school. And I watch the first disc, and I'm hooked. I am immediately sold on Godanner. It's crazy, it's over the top, and oh, the fan service. Oh god, the fan service. We'll talk about the fan service, but <laughs> Godanner was my first exposure to ecchi anime outside of Ranma 1 half. Oh, oh wow, that's that's quite a first anime to be exposed to fan service to. Hey, it's good, actually. Yeah. So every time a new volume got out, whether it was in a Suncoast, in an FYE, or if I ordered it from... I think I ordered volumes from Right Stuff? Mm, I would buy it and immediately watch it. And I'll never forget where I was when the final volume came out. I think my mom ordered me the final volume, and I watched it in my mom's old minivan while en route to my brother's hockey tournament... In Lake Placid, New York. Nice. Nice. It was in the dead of winter, too, so, you know, when you're taking a break, you can look at the beautiful snow-capped fields and walls of ice along the roadway. Yeah, that's beautiful, man. Damn. I watched that final disc twice, once sub, once dub, and I would rewatch it years later when I was doing cringy Channel Awesome style reviews that... I don't think are online anymore. You could check, but I'm, I'm not happy with those videos, at least not nowadays. And I always wanted to talk about Godanner in podcast form just because it's one of those shows from the 2000s that I think deserves more attention because in hindsight, I think the 2000s are an interesting decade for anime. Not the 
best decade. I don't think anything will ever top the 80s as far as quality goes, but there's a lot of interesting trends, hidden gems, and some pretty important series that came out that decade. And so, after reviewing two terrible shows in a row, what better way to wash the taste out of my mouth than with one of my absolute favorite robot shows of all time? Godander doesn't just hold a place in my heart because it's a great show. It was my first exposure to Super Robots. Like, for so many other fans who are my age, their exposure was things like Gundam Wing or Gundam Seed or maybe Evangelion or Code Geass. Mine, for Super Robots, was Godanner. My exposure to real robots was Full Metal Panic. You know, I'd have to say, as somebody who's been exposed to anime from a very young age, in fact, my, uh, so I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on the show, but the reason I got exposed to anime was because my father is a martial artist, and he uh, lived in Japan for a time. He lived in Kawasaki for about four or five years. So he's not really fluent in Japanese anymore because um, he hasn't really had to speak it consistently in a long time but aside from his love of martial arts my dad also took a very profound love of anime uh and alongside monster movies and kung fu flicks anime were regular fare for me growing up while the first anime for me was admittedly something i probably shouldn't have watched at such a young age it was uh the 1986 uh fist in the north star film um <laughs> what i will say is that the first super robots I remember seeing as a kid were, you know, a lot of the typical ones of, like, Gigantor, um, Macron 1, Voltron, but ones that really resonated with me were ones like Tekaman Blade and a couple others like Magic Knight Ray Earth. Um, that really resonated with me. So I think having been into anime as long as I have, you saying that your first exposure to super robots and super giant robots is um, is Godanar, honestly, that's a good stepping stone. Because for as long as I've been into anime, and as many titles as I've viewed, I still feel like Godanar captures a level of magic that was indicative of the time of the 2000s when it came out, but also encapsulates and distills what made giant robots of like the 90s and 80s great as well. Um, so it's a fantastic jump off point for anybody who hasn't experienced it. And between that and Full Metal Panic, you know, rounding out, you know, your more realistic robots, you know, um, you didn't necessarily have the Voltoms experience at the time, but god damn, those are good starter mech anime, bro. I would sooner recommend Full Metal Panic over Evangelion any day of the week. Go Danner, I wouldn't say is for beginners, but we'll probably break that down. So, I guess we should start where we always start with animation. And I gotta say, going back and watching this on DVD, because I still have all of my singles, and each single disc has numerous autographs from the cast members... I am shocked at just how well Godanner holds up for 2003. Oh, yeah, no. Godanner's, Godanner's gorgeous. Like, we've spoken in prior episodes on length 
about how the 2000s are a very awkward transitional time for anime as a whole. Uh, transitioning from traditional cel-shaded animation to a digital media uh, was shaky, and although it did allow for some experimentation that coincided with some of the more experimental storytelling of that time, some of those experiments don't always pan out so well. Goldener is not the case. Goldener is still hype as hell to watch, even to this day. Goldener looks fantastic for 2003. I've cited 2003 as the year when animation studios really started figuring out how to use digital animation so that it doesn't look so awkward. And even in simple 480p, which is what the DVD quality is, it still looks fantastic. You could release Godanner today, and nobody would be able to guess that this came out in 2003. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, you know, that upscaled version that they have, you know, on High Dive, you know, you show it right now. You know, you show it, you put it on Adult Swim, like on their Saturday Toonami block, people will still think, God damn, that shit looks fantastic. And it is. It's fantastic. And people deserve to watch it in its best quality. Or like you said, even just like on a good tube TV with like a good solid DVD player. But it's just a shame that it's locked behind a service that's shaky. But yes, in terms of strictly just the show itself, it's it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. It, it, it gets me hype in the way that nostalgic you know sort of viewings of like g gundam did when i was a kid when g gundam was first being aired on toonami after school when i was in high school it gets me hype in the exact same way it really just ah uh, and not even just you know for the obvious reasons of like the mech fights and the monsters and stuff but even moments of drama that are just interpersonal between the characters or even just watching run cycles of Anna Aoi like running through uh uh Godanner base it's someday I'm well done it's just fantastic it's really a technical marvel and for as much as people you know like will still gush about like oh man rock lee versus gara you know and you know that fight is cool i'm not going to take away from like the bigger like productions but if rock lee versus gara right is all you really know about like 2000s action anime like early 2000 mm -mm. you need you need to watch godanner it'll it'll make you change your mind real quick about just what the pinnacle of like style uh was of this time it's meant to capture the look and feel of a super robot anime from the 70s and considering how many different environments the fight takes place in some take place in metropolitan areas some are at sea some are by industrial areas some are in a forest i think it captures that look perfectly and let's not forget the character designs too which is as i said it's kind of what drew me to the show Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, everything from Anna's bright amber-colored eyes and cute pink hair to uh, Lou's, like, steely, cold look, uh, especially as she becomes more vengeful throughout the series. Even uh, Boss's uh, little tuft of red hair in the front, you know, that just sort of enhances his already strong facial structure, you know. Everybody in this show, even, you know, like the Bridge Bunnies, they all stand out. There's nobody here that really looks bland, and it's so inviting to take in. Even if some of these characters are, like, 
caricatures or heavy stylizations of where they're from. Like some of the international pilots are really over the top, you know, stereotypes in some regard. Especially the Russian, the Russian crew. Ekaterina is just very, very ridiculous. She's very dominant, but I still admire how over the top her design is. She just pulls it off so well. While we're talking about the character designs, and I'll talk about this as to why I love them, we have to talk about the character designer. And that is a man who passed away a few months ago. And this is one of a few times where a death in the industry really hit me. It was a man by the name of Takahiro Kimura. Longtime veteran of the anime industry, animator, storyboarder, and the like, illustrator. He was a staple at Studio Sunrise. In particular, he was the character designer for a little show called The King of Braves, Gaugaigar. Holy shit. I'm looking at his Wikipedia right now, and like, especially like that period between the late 90s and the early 2000s, um, you mentioned in particular his character designs, not even his mechs, just his characters and like some of the, the sex appeal, the etchy fan service factor. His work is such a standout of the time. You know, his designs for Dirty Pair Flash, his designs for, for G Gundam. Variable um, Geo. Yeah, it's so um, influential for this period. It, you really can't understate just how impactful his work is for this time. He also was character designer on both of Gal Gygar's spinoffs, both Brigadoon and Better Man. Two years later, he would go on to be character designer on another AIC robot show called Gunsword. And in 2006, he would work on a show that would catapult his reputation up into the stratosphere. He was the character designer for Code Geass. And it shows. It shows I know, quite a bit. I know that people will say, oh, well, Clamp did the character designs for Code Geass, and yes, Clamp did, like, the primary character designs, but when you look at how they're animated and cross-reference it with Kimura's other works, the character designs in Code Geass are 100% Takahiro Kimura's. Yeah, absolutely. There's things that stick out about, like, the way he does facial proportions, the way he highlights uh, line weight and line heaviness. Um, especially like on female characters, uh, there's ways that he uses shape language and character hair um, to sort of square them off or to sort of intensify other aspects of their character that's just distinctly his. Uh, and even in titles where he may have only illustrated small aspects of the show, may not have been a primary character designer, uh, like Kitty Grade, you could still see his influence in the industry and how that reflects on other aspects of those shows. Like from what I'm seeing here, he only worked on one episode of Kitty Grade. But if you were to look at characters from Kitty Grade and put them next to characters from Godenar, uh, particularly, I forget what the younger agent's name is in Kitty Grade, but if you stand her next to Lou, you'd be like, oh, yeah, no, these two could be sisters. They're definitely drawn or inspired by like the same artists for sure. I think it's Lumiere who you're thinking of. Yes, it is Lumiere. Lumiere and Lou have similar energy in terms of like their design aspects. 
according to one of the mecha designers, when he was working with Kimura, he said that depending on the project, Kimura takes different approaches to his character designs. With Gal Gygar, because he's designing a show that's meant for kids and teenagers, they very much keep within that 90s super robot show aesthetic, where you have designs that are kid-friendly but have a more adult edge to them. In Brigadoon, which is a little more light-hearted kind of show, the characters have a bit more airiness and cuteness to their look. But with Godanner, he just lets it all fly. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, especially, you know, you talk about the fan service. In fact, some of the poses that Anna's in and some of like the, the splash panels uh, for the commercial transitions, some you, they're almost exactly the same as like the splash panels in some of the promo art you see for Dirty Pair Flash. Um, there's one pose in particular that Anna does where like, She's like sort of leaping forward and she's got like her left leg uh, bent forward and um, her right leg going back. And that's almost verbatim a, a pose that he's used in previous shows. But I remember in particular for Dirty Pair Flash, he used a similar pose for the characters for their splash pages too. It's not just the poses though, it's the proportions. Like, oh yeah. Like you mentioned Ekaterina, the one that got me was Anna's mom Kiriko. Oh Just yeah, the size yeah. of those bosoms and the amount of cleavage on that outfit—you know, <laughs> horny teenage me was of course attracted to such a voluptuous woman. But also, oh, I, yeah. how, I also like the shapes that he uses for when he draws hair. Like, it's the tasty leftovers of that '90s anime aesthetic. Incredibly large irises, geometric shapes for hair, and one thing that's common in a lot of Kimura's designs is his lanky proportions. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially for male characters, they tend to be very, even if they're stronger male characters, like Go or the boss, uh, they still have very long legs and their arms are always a little bit more extended to sort of in, uh, imbue that sense of masculinity in them. It's really kind of cool. Kimura said that Go was the hardest character for him to design. Really? Yeah. Simply because he had to be in the right mood for it. I can kind of see that. I can kind of see that, yeah. Yeah, especially, like, if you were to look at, like, Go's go-to expressions and, like, uh, what I'd imagine would be, like, his model reference sheet. Go can switch from very intense to just very calm within an episode. Uh, sometimes within... A few minutes, like some of the arguments he has with Anna just has him going and changing expressions just off the fly in like the span of a minute, like multiple times. And it's kind of great. But I can imagine, especially for somebody who's used to maybe drawing uh, female characters the way he does, transitioning to a male character with his proportions and that strong shin. <laughs> yeah, it might be a little tougher for him to capture it right away. Go's got an Antonio and Noki level chin. He really does. Kimura is one of those artists whose style you wouldn't mistake for anyone else's. And the fact that he's gone just really hits me right in the feels. Because if there's one thing modern anime lacks among many of its other shortcomings, at least by today's standards, you're really missing that character designer who has his own unique style. You know, your Akio Suginos, your Kenichi Sonodas, your Kia Asamiyas, and so forth. 
Yeah, yeah, it's true. Uh, I can honestly say, you know, when you talk about, like, house styles, um, the closest I've seen to, like, a trend in house styles is I've seen, uh, is, I always pick, uh, mix up the two, but I think it's MAPPA. MAPPA's doing both, what, Chainsaw Man and Jujutsu Kaisen, right? Correct. It's them or MAPPA. It's MAPPA. So the only thing I've noticed, like, in recent years is that MAPPA seems to have developed a particular style for doing opening intros, but that seems to be more of a studio style than a particular artist style. Um, it's not quite the same impact, but you're right. It is something that seems to be missing from the industry as a whole. There doesn't seem to be uh, in any one particular studio at this time an overarching like figurehead that's sort of directing a visual appeal um, that makes you say, like, oh, yeah, that's definitely, you know, a Sunrise production or anything of that nature. I swear to God, if you take Hirokazu Hisayuki from us 2023... We've already had a lot of loss this year, man. Both in the anime industry and the music industry, man. You know, I just... Yeah, I, I'm not trying to think about it right now. But yeah, um, you know, since we are talking about characters and character designs... Do you have any particular favorites that stand out? Because I definitely do. I definitely have a couple. You know, as much as I hate to say that I'm a simp, I gotta go with the one that brought me to the dance. I gotta go with Kiriko. <laughs> I don't blame you at all. She's she's gorgeous. Uh, and you know, it's funny. Um, this harkens back a little bit to a prior episode we did. But even though it's different designers... She encapsulates that same MILF energy that What's-Her-Name's mom has and Please Teacher. It's just the Mizuno right amount. Yes. Same, same sort of energy. Only I like Kiriko's design a lot more. I think it's like maybe the glasses, and it's not her breasts, but her eyes. Those yellow eyes that she has. Her eyes are a lot more expressive, um, even if Kiriko is often having to play a stern figure because of her role within Goldaner base. Uh, those moments of emotional vulnerability on her behalf, the, the animation quality that they put into her eyes is really expressive and really sweet. Um, it definitely draws you to the character even more than what her physical appearance would, for sure. Um, as far as favorite characters for me, as far as design goes, I adore Lou. Lou's design is fantastic. Not only because it also coincides so well with her changes as a character, but everything about those changes she goes through gets subtly shifted throughout the show in her physique and how she expresses herself. Uh, especially her facial expressions. You know, when you first get introduced to Lou, Lou's a very sweet and innocent, you know, loving character. She's open to so many new things. And then as the show progresses and she endures, you know, the experiences she does, her expression changes ever so slightly. And even though physically she's still the same young girl, seeing that innocence turn slowly into vengeance uh as well as who she ends up uh connecting to uh ken uh and how ken sort of mirrors 
her rage at the time. It's really subtle visual storytelling, uh, and her character design just reflects it so damn well. Moshiboshi, Kesatsu desu ka? Yeah, I absolutely love it. Lou's fantastic. But of course, the stars of the show are the robots. And oh, yeah. we've got ourselves a pretty prolific designer when it comes to it. I assumed that it was going to be somebody who was pretty famous, you know, like Kunio Okawara. Shoji Kawamori, who I talked about in my Arjuna review. Maybe Masami Obari, although he was busy with Gravion at the time, and I'll probably bring up Gravion in the primetime discussion. But the guy who did the designs for Godanner's Mecha was Masahiro Yamane. And Masahiro Yamane cut his teeth while working on, unsurprisingly, the Brave series. Specifically, he was the Mecha designer for Gal Gygar. And it's two spin-offs, Better Man and Brigadoon. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. He's more of a key animator than a designer, but I have to say, Godanner has some of the coolest and most memorable super robot designs that you will see. The best way I can describe them, they look like 70s super robots that have been updated for the modern era. Yeah, absolutely. So I know... We'd spoken about this in passing before the show at one point, but um, as far as mech shows go uh, for this time period, this show, along with the first one I ever reviewed with you, Die Guard, they both hit that level of design nostalgia just right. They do it in different ways, but they both hit the same energy. They both embrace the big, chonky, strong mecha design. I, I, I fucking love that. I absolutely love that in this show. I mentioned this in the Die Guard view, but Godanner's twin drive mode looks eerily similar to Die Guard, at least in terms of proportions. You kind of have to squint a little to see the differences. And I thought that it would be the same designer, but no, they were designed by completely different people. You know, convergent, uh, convergent design evolution, I guess. What I love, though, about the robots in this is that rather than just being a means to an end or something that the character to pilot, the robots are meant to be a reflection of the character's personalities. And I love that. It's the idea of a robot being an extension of the human body taken to its logical conclusion. And there are some awesome designs among the robots, and even, like, among the grunt suits, the, uh, boys, they're called. Yeah, yeah, even some of them look pretty cool. Like, um, there's a couple episodes where they show these gorilla-looking ones called, I think they're the Fat Boys. Yes, they're um, called the Fat Boys. Yeah, uh, and I kind of like them because, like, even though, like, oh, yeah, they're just kind of, like, the grunty mechs, but, like, the way they're designed and proportioned and everything, it's like, oh, man kind of gives me like beast wars vibes it's just kind of like seeing optimal optimus again you know it just it feels good watching them go about and do their thing there's a lot of influence from the old masters on display even though like there's no guest mecha designers although there was a secondary mecha designer for this and that guy was tsukasa kotobuki most famous as character designer for the battle arena to shinden games he was also responsible for doing character designs for the Saber Marionette J series, 
He also created Cyber Team in Akihabara, although we won't hold that one against him. No, but, you know, you mentioned, you know, Battle Arena Toshinden, and what was the other title you mentioned? Um, Saber Marionette J. That's another, like, designer where, much like Mas- uh, not Masahiro, the other gentleman we were just speaking about who passed away recently. Kimura, um, Takahiro Kimura. He- his designs really stand out for the time, especially his sort of like etchy sort of work. Yeah, like if you look at, especially the way he draws women, there's a period of time where in the mid 90s, especially for fighting game and related properties uh, that got anime adaptations, you see his work. Uh, and he draws breast a particular way that I'll, I can't forget especially with the nipple shape um oh, it's very <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh it definitely sticks out so uh knowing that he also contributed design work alongside um our buddy here yeah it, it's cool to see two masters in the field just sort of making cool shit together do you have a favorite mecha design in godanner i've got three favorites actually Uh, and i like i like them for different reasons but they all sort of gravitate at the end towards like hitting that like oh man little kid me when if i had action figures i would want action figures of these that's essentially what it comes down to like they hit that like little kid point in me where it's like damn i wish i had toys of these so the ones i really absolutely love are G Zero Gunner uh, from Godan Our Base? Um, That's a Shizu's mech. Yes, from China. I love uh, Godiner. Um, I love that sense of strength Godiner has, especially with like his big hammer weapon. But I also am kind of fond of mechs that don't have typical feet design and God Godiner's feet kind of remind me a little bit of like some of the mechs from zone of the enders it's not quite as pointed but i think it kind of serves godiner's shape language to not have actual feet and the last one i really absolutely adore especially because it coincides with her story so well is i love cosmo diver cosmo diver looks cool as hell you know the godiner dvds came with booklets that have interviews with the cast and takahiro kimura said that his favorite mecha in the show was the godiner because it's feeder cute <laughs> his words not mine oh, i love it that's a fantastic answer what are your three favorites man uh my three favorites i'm going to share a mutual with yours and go with the cosmo diver i think it's the perfect idea of how a simple robot can look so endearing. It's 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 a cute mech, but it has like this aura that it could really mess you up. And when you consider that it was built so that it could fight in low gravity or zero G environments like underwater or in space, its design reflects that. It doesn't look cool for the sake of looking cool. Yamane designed it with a specific purpose in mind. Number two, I thought about this one, but I'm gonna go with Ken's Mech, the Blade Gainer. It's the most Okawara-esque of all the designs in this show. 
You know what? That's fair. That's fair. Especially the cloak. The cloak hits different. It reminds me a lot of the Master Gundam from G Gundam. All it needs is a horse. Although it does have a it, falcon with it, so that's pretty cool. That is pretty fantastic. And my number one, I gotta be a basic bitch. I gotta go with the Neo Oak, sir. You know what? I can't hate those answers at all. Those answers are all cool. And to be honest, you know, we were even talking about, like, the grunt mechs. I can honestly say there aren't really any bad designs in this show. Well, I know we kind of disagreed at this at one point. We were speaking about this briefly. I don't feel that there's any bad designs in this show. I think there's one design that you didn't like, though, if I remember correctly. I was about to ask you, but the reason why I like the Neo Oaxer is that I just love how regal and majestic it looks. It has that era of sexiness, but it's not too over the top. It's uh, it's not the Volspina, let's put it that way. <laughs> I just love the touches. It's little tiara that it's got. I love its Odongo. I, I just love how it's sort, it looks like a swimsuit model, but with so much dignity to it. It's little robot high heels. The colors, too. I mean, it does get an upgrade called the Go Oaxer. I'm not a fan of it, but that's not my least favorite of the mechs. I still think the Go Oaxer is pretty cool, but the Neo Oaxer is the better of the two. I think it's mostly just the fact that you take a nice light shade of pink rather than have it be like a shocking pink or a deeper magenta. And you have an absolutely wonderful mech design. If I had to pick one that I would say is the ugly duckling of the lot, I'd say it's the drag liner. Not that I don't think it's a bad design. It's more of a, well, it didn't do anything for me kind of design. It still looks cool. It's just not my favorite. My thing with the drag liner is this. And I feel like the show didn't take advantage of this enough. So when you see the drag liner, right, it's usually just in its bomber form. They only show it like once or twice, but the drag liner actually has a dragon form. I was like, that's really fucking cool. You got to show that more. But they really don't. They don't show it enough. I get the feeling that the staff wanted to do more with the drag liner, considering that it's a freaking stealth bomber. Yeah, yeah, it's a shame that, you know, for as endearing as its pilots are, it kind of feels like of like the global like task force um and bases um that england's uh crew always sort of got like they were almost like the jobbers amongst like the other like crews like yeah some of the other crews ended up suffering like worse fates but when you're essentially just a bomber it doesn't really feel like you can have as dynamic a fight as some of the other like crews could i don't know I wouldn't say I they're know. jobbers like uh, Boss from Mazinger Z. It's more like they're the wrestlers who show up every now and then on WWE or AEW that just don't get used very often. Yeah, that's fair. I think uh, when you have so fair, many characters, I... somebody's going to have to get short-shifted. And unfortunately, it's Knight Ellis and their bomber jet, the Dragliner. That's true. And to be fair, the show does have a real jobber. And they make a good joke out of it, too. He's not in the show for very long, but I mentioned I really love uh, Gunner and Neil Gunner. His pilot, oh, God. We'll talk I, about Koji. Oh, God. <laughs> but, of course, we hinted at this with the character designs. We talked about this with the robots. Sometimes having sexy characters, having cool robots, isn't enough. Sometimes, if you really need to sell the show... 
you gotta have fan service. And Godenner's got that in buckets. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's funny that you bring up the fan service because I have a couple tabs open just to sort of refer back and forth to for like the different mech models and stuff. There's an image here on Google Images. If you just type in Godanner, if you scroll down a little bit, you mentioned having the DVDs. There's an image of volume five of Godanner uh, called International Affairs. And the cover is Ekaterina, the British pilot, the British female pilot. Uh, um, no, that's not, that's not Ellis. That's uh, um, Luna. Okay, Luna, uh, the Chinese pilots, and Volspina, and it's just, Ekaterina's tits are just straight there. They're just right there. Your your attention is drawn immediately to them. And, you know, I appreciate the fan service for sure. You know, I love the shape language. I love the designs. But, yeah, this show has no... No inhibitions about showing you like, yeah, no, you're gonna you're gonna have some uh, some fun. You're gonna see some titties for sure. So, but one thing I will say is that, and I remember we mentioned this to each other a couple weeks back before we started the recording. The show is also tasteful in not only when it does its fan service, but who it does it with. And even when certain characters have fan service moments, there are other moments when there's moments of modesty or embarrassment where they just choose not to do it. There's a couple moments with Anna where Anna's in a compromising position and Go's younger brother finds her and you don't get to see anything. Or there's a couple moments where Lou, where Lou looks like you could potentially get some fan, but they never fan service Lou. She shouldn't be looted. She's she's like a kid. They shouldn't. But let's be honest. There's plenty of anime that would have. Oh, I she, bet. I bet. Yes, there's plenty of anime that would have. But I actually respect the crew behind Godanner for quite a bit because they do have these moments of like respecting characters and just drawing a line at certain points and. You'll, there's a point where you see, like, well, several moments. Uh, Lou's outfit isn't necessarily modest, but you never see her in any positions that would, like, sexualize her either, which is really cool, to be honest. This was my first exposure to fan service in anime. I'd seen nudity before and things on yeah. Cartoon Network. I saw it in Inuyasha. I saw it with Ghost in the Shell standalone complex, but, like, this was my first big, in-your-face, bouncing titties, gratuitous panty shots, skin-tight outfits that are so tight you can tell when the girl's nipples are erect levels oh, of yeah. tightness. I am so thankful that my parents did not walk in on me while I was watching this in high school. Oh, I don't blame you. I don't blame you at all. And yet, when I was watching this my third time, because I watched it again, and I remember when I did my cringy Channel Awesome video review of this, I counted... How many times there are bouncing breasts in the show? It had to be, like, close to 200 or so. But it doesn't distract the viewer. Maybe it's because I'm numb to it, but it doesn't feel like the fan service is getting in the way of anything or ruins the mood. Although it is sad that the only thing that people know of Godanner is the fan service. Because there are three moments in the show, technically four, but one of them is the same thing that often go viral on social media. 
and they're all fan service moments. The first of which is, well, the same scene, but twice. That is the scene where Kiriko and later Shizuru pull the cell phone out from their cleavage after they have it set to vibrate. Mm-hmm. The second moment is when Kiriko is psyched for Danner Base's next mission that she jerks her body forward and it causes her breasts to bounce in a way that makes the buttons pop out of her blouse. Yep. And the most notorious moment from Go Danner, you know it, you love it. It's mm-hmm. the scene of Shizuru getting her butt stuck in an exhaust yep. port. Yep. Yep. That moment gets passed around like a big old sheet cake at a birthday party. It really does. Everybody gets a piece. <laughs> Ironically, though, in context, that is actually from a very serious scene early on in the show. And that moment is just a three-second gag, and it doesn't even ruin the mood of the moment. No, it really doesn't. And it kind of goes back to what we have both sort of been dancing around. So there's moments in anime with fan service where fan service is sort of like the equivalent of hearing artificial laughter in a sitcom. Like, okay, you're supposed to be like, ah, oh, ha, ha, that's the horny bit, right? But when people are good at storytelling, both visually and literally, and they insert these moments as part of the narrative, not as a distraction from the narrative, these moments just feel natural. Like a lot of the fan service, when it happens, it feels more incidental than purposeful. It doesn't feel like somebody waving a sign in the hair, be like, ha ha, horny moment. It doesn't feel like somebody's telling you to blink. It just happens more often than not. Which is why when those moments happen where they choose to be modest, it just show goes to show like these characters are actually, you know, they're people, you know. They're not there just to be objects, you know. They treat each other with respect, you know. They care about one another. You're not just going to see Anna's panties if she's like exhausted and passed out, you know. There's a reason for it to happen. They know when to hold it and they know when to fold it. And it also helps, and we're skipping ahead to the storytelling, it helps that there are no pervert characters in the show. Like, there are moments of perversion, but there are no pervert characters. And when someone is being a pervert, they're usually paid in full for it. Yeah, that's true. I think the closest the show gets to a pervert is that one guy on the bridge who has a bit of a glasses fetish. But even then, you know, it's... Not to the point where it's, like, detrimental to his character or to the work he does on the bridge. Absolutely not. It doesn't get in the way of the story. There's a fine line between something like Godanner and something like, say, Iken or Makinki. Oh, absolutely. And there are plenty of etchy anime that you watch and you think are pretty cool when you're younger, but, like, you go back and visit them now and you're like, Ugh, why did I like this? Not Godanner. Godanner, even with all of its fan service, still holds up, and it's due to that nature of restraint, knowing when to go all out, knowing when to pull back, writing the characters as actual human beings rather than just eye candy for the audience, really helps the fan service go down a little easier. 
it not only helps it go down easier, but it's one of those things where, you know, you, you look at certain anime and certain products and people may look at them like, oh, this is a product of its time. I think it helps elevate Goldaner to a level where it surpasses its time. It's not something that's just merely a product of when it came out. Those moments are there and they're fun for sure, but I think if given the right amount of attention, even 10, 15, 20 years from now, if anybody was to go back and either rewatch Godaner or even show this to a younger relative or a friend for the first time, they would still be able to walk away from this without necessarily having a bad taste in their mouth from those moments. I think it helps elevate it past its lewdness when it does choose to be lewd. And I think it's all the better for it. I've said once that when it comes to fan service, I don't mind tits and ass, but I need something more than just boobs to grab onto. And there is so much meat on the bone for Godaner that that fan service just, it just disappears from your eyes and you just don't even know it's there. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate it for it. We have spoken so long about the animation. Let's move on to the soundtrack. And if you want to know just how much tender love and care was put in to the show's production and how much passion the team had for this, the composer that they got for this is a legend. The soundtrack was made to invoke the feeling of an old 70s or 80s robot show, and it makes sense once you discover that the composer was one Michiaki Chumei Watanabe legendary Japanese composer for both anime and tokusatsu. This was the man who composed the music for the movie Supergiant, which is cited as being the first tokusatsu hero in Japanese history. Yeah, no, he's he's a goddamn legend. And you know, this is unfortunately the second person we're mentioning in this show that was part of the production that's no longer with us. It is a goddamn shame that Michiaki passed away because his music was unparalleled. The amount of projects he worked on, the projects that he was involved in, from the goofy yet endearing... In addition to that, he also composed for both Inazuman and Kikaida, he wrote theme songs for the Metal Hero series and composed for the first six Super Sentai series from Go Ranger to Goggle V. And if you want to know just how long he composed for, he did the soundtrack for the recent Sentai series Zenkaiger at the ripe old age of 95. Absolute legend. The man was an absolute legend anime wise he also composed for the aic productions dan gaio which i reviewed a while back he did the music for ixer one uh transformers zone muta king and most significantly he was the one who did the music to the mazinger series mazinger z great mazinger and grandizer had their OSTs and their theme songs composed by Chumei Watanabe. He set the standard for Super Robot soundtracks in the 1970s. 
he really absolutely did. And for those of you who really want a good laugh, but also want to feel the impact of his work, even if you haven't seen any of those other shows, whether they be Sentai or Mecha or anything in between, you have heard his music for sure. Because if you've been on the internet long enough and you've seen enough memes, you've eventually come across the 1978 live-action Japanese version of Spider-Man, affectionately called Supaida-Man. He did the music for that show as well. And if you love Supaida-Man and you love the sound of his theme, you know Michiaki's sound right away. It's emblematic of the period. And the way that was transposed into Goldenar was chef's kiss. It's beautiful. It's very heavy on horns, very heavy on strings. It perfectly captures that super robot feeling. Although, and this was intentional... AIC did recycle a few of his tracks from his previous works, specifically from Great Mazinger, Ixer One, and Dan Gaio. Dan Gaio was the one I caught immediately. I caught the Dan Gaio one as well, but I'm not as familiar with some of the Mazinger work, so I'm would have been it would have been lost on me if they recycled those songs. Hey, as I like to say, the best references are the ones you don't know are supposed to be references. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. But yeah, no, the soundtrack is masterful. And we've we've spoken before about previous shows, about how some shows and some composers are just all bombast or they only hit one note. Although Michiaki has a style, he is not a one-note composer by any means. Even though he has a preference for that heavy, big brass sound that was emblematic of the 70s and early 80s. The best tracks on the Godan or OST are the slow songs. The piano versions of the theme songs are absolutely beautiful. That's true invocation of a 70s and 80s robot songs where you have like slow acoustic versions of the show's theme song. Absolutely, like classical reprises of like the show's themes and reworking of like different motifs from intros into more emotional moments. It's masterfully done in this show. And those tender moments where they explore some of the team dynamics between the other uh, bases is really well done. Uh, I remember in particular, it really caught me when you would see um, the Russian team sort of uh, exploring their uh, relationship dynamic during a time where the relationship dynamic of Goldaner's base is sort of in flux. Uh, and it's really well done just to see a Katerina and her partner sort of have that dynamic set to the tone of Michiaki's music. It's, it's fantastic. Also, I would be remiss if I did not mention this because this is also a show that is near and dear to my heart. Chume Watanabe composed for tokusatsu and for anime, and he composed for a tokusatsu anime. He did the theme song for Shinesman. Nice. Yes, that awesome jam project opening at the beginning of Shinesman, that was composed and arranged by Watanabe. Godspeed, Watanabe. Rest in peace, man. And speaking of the theme songs... I think we should also talk about those two because when it comes to Super Robot parodies, Martian successor Nadesco used a 90s J-pop song. 
Dieguard used a punk rock song called Back Alley Space Boy, which anybody who talks about Dieguard needs to mention that, so I'm mentioning it here. But Watanabe composed openings and endings that are unique to Godanner, something we don't see enough of in modern anime. And like the soundtrack, these are meant to be evocative of the old Super Robot openings, where the show sung about how awesome the robot is and how powerful it is. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's fantastic, and it works so well with the opening animation intro. It's just, god damn, it gets you hype in a way that I feel is lost on current generations who didn't get the chance to grow up with Saturday morning cartoons and action figures, you know, y'all really missed out because Godinar's intros really encapsulate that sort of Saturday morning cartoon energy uh, in a way that just is near and dear to my heart. It's fantastic. Right down to the singers they hired to sing it, because they didn't just get any old J-pop singer, you understand. They got three legends to sing the openings and endings. The first opening and second ending is sung by longtime tokusatsu singer Akira Kushida. He sung a lot of the songs in Kinikuman, he did the songs for Toriko, and sang the opening for Zabungle, but he's most famous for his work in tokusatsu. He sang the openings for Kamen Rider Z-Cross, Sun Vulcan, and was a longtime singer for the Metal Heroes franchise, the likes of Just Beyond, Shider, and the originator and most famous, Gavon. Yeah, no, his voice is just, it's powerful stuff. It's emblematic, and what I love most about Akira is that even to this day, like when he does his performances, and the way he styles his hair, he, he just encapsulates everything you would expect of a person singing these songs. Like, Akira looks like a man who enjoys being the embodiment of, like, super mecha anime. It's it's unreal just how much fun this man looks like he's having whenever he performs. And it, it's conveyed so well in these themes. It's, it's fantastic. I think most fans in our generation, or at least Toku fans from our generation, will know him best as the voice of the O's scanner from Common Rider O's. Yeah. Meanwhile, the first ending and second opening are sung by anime's greatest power couple. It's the husband and wife duo of Mitsuko Horie and everybody's favorite Aniki, Ichiro Mizuki. I definitely heard the names before, but I'm not as familiar with their work, I think. Or you'll probably say stuff and then I'll be like, holy shit, that's them. But the names aren't really clicking for me at the moment. Well, Mitsuko Horie was the singer for many different anime openings. She first performed her first ever Anna song when she was only 12. She sang the openings to classics like Candy Candy, Voltus 5, the volleyball anime Attack on Tomorrow. Oh my god, she did the themes for Dr. Slump. Oh my god. 
Holy shit, she's been doing this for you. Oh my god. She's I know her voice for... Yeah. She, yeah. She's also done voice acting. Uh, she played the titular Akko-chan in the 1988 version of Akko-chan. And she was most famous as Sailor Galaxia in Sailor Moon Stars. As for Ichiro Mizuki... Well, I don't have the words to describe the man we called Aniki. The man is a legend. This is a man who went from a failed lounge singer to becoming a cultural icon within the span of a few years. He'd previously sung some songs for, I forget the name of the series from Shotaro Ishinomori, it was the Jungle Boy series, and he sung the theme to the notorious Nak Mecha anime Astro Ganger, but in 1972, he sang the opening to a little series called Mazinger Z, and his career just skyrocketed from there. Yeah, no, I definitely... Oh my god, I'm looking at his list to... List off his projects. List off, because his stuff is fantastic. You will know him as singing the openings for Mazinger Z, Great Mazinger, Combattler V... Common Rider Stronger, Captain Harlock, Devil Man, Common Rider V3, Common Rider X, the aforementioned Voltus V, Kotetsu Jig, Getter Robo Go, Getter Robo Armageddon, and he was the founder of Jam Project. Yeah. Yeah. Jam Project. Just go and watch him perform live, even with his older age and his voice a bit diminished because he was a smoker, unfortunately. He had so much passion for the art of music. He performed his last concerts in a wheelchair. That's how committed he was to making people happy. He sang a 24-hour concert where he performed like a thousand songs. God. Damn. And sadly, we lost him in December of last year at the age of 74. And this was the other death that really hit me because Mizuki, Mizuki has a place in every Mecha fan's heart, whether they know his works or not. Super Robot songs aren't the same without him. And... The fact that he's no longer with us made the first ending of Godaner hit so much differently. I shed a tear once Trench Coffin came on. Yeah, no, that's understandable. It's a powerful song. It is. And honestly, it's a fitting song to remember the one we called Aniki by. It really is. Him and Mitsuko Horie, there may be other greater power couples. I think the greatest J-pop power couple is Tatsuro Yamashita and Maria Takeuchi. But when it comes to Anna song singers, you won't get any better than the duo of Mitsuko Horie and the one we called Aniki. Godspeed to you, Ichiro Mizuki. You're a legend, and you'll forever live on in our hearts.
So on to voice acting, and we've got quite the cast, and I'm not going to go through everyone, just the ones that I think are notable. Go is voiced by Takeyuki Kondo. You might know him as Shuichiro Oishi in Prince of Tennis, Eita Tanaka in Shakugan no Shana, Kameya in The Vampire Dies in No Time, and I think his most famous role is Popo in Anohana. He's also the Japanese voice of Phoenix Wright. Nice. Oriusuke Naruhodo, if you live in Japan. Ana is voiced by somebody who I am very familiar with, and that's Mai Nakahara. We previously heard her on the show as Maya Mizuki in Daphne and the Brilliant Blue. And the year prior to Go Danner, she was in another Super Robot show. She was Aina in Gravion. Her other famous roles are Rena in Higurashi, Juvia in Fairy Tale, Nagisa in Clannad, and a character that I love endlessly and I've been thinking a lot about because I'm about to rewatch the show. She's my Tokiha in My Hime and My Otome. To get around to watching those. The My series is crucial in the birth of what we call the action magical girl genre. Uh, is this going to be another step to you eventually asking me to watch Simple Gear? Uh, I can't comment on that. <laughs> Shizuru is voiced by Yumi Kakazu. Mecha fans will know her as Sala Tyrell in Gundam X, Rene Shishio in Galgaigar, Dita Libli in Vandred, and she is Sayuki in Initial D, Magical Sapphire in Fate Khalid, and Kula Diamond in the King of Fighters series. Mira, meanwhile, is voiced by the legendary Aya Hisakawa, most famous for being the voice of Sailor Mercury in Sailor Moon, Skulled in Oh My Goddess, Yuki Soma in the 2001 version of Fruits Basket, Baros in Cardcaptor Sakura, Haruko Kamio in Air, and Uno Hana in Bleach. Impressive resume. Takako Honda plays Anna's mom Kiriko. She plays another character with G-cups full of justice, Makina in Dead Man Wonderland. You can also hear her as Catherine Svartza in Trinity Blood, Hibari Ginza in Speed Grapher, Sheena in Ranking of Kings, Junko Sautome in Nana, and one that routinely gets featured in Best Dubs of All Time, even though I have my issues with it. She's Hajime Aoyama in Ghost Stories. There's a lot of other voice actors in this show, and I don't want to mention them all, but a few that I do want to mention. Our favorite jobber pilot, Tetsuya Koji, is voiced by Nobuyuki Hiyama. And I mentioned his name before, but Nobuyuki Hiyama is royalty among mecha fans. He's Shiro Amada in Gundam the 8th MS Team, Murata Azrael in Gundam Seed, Viral in Gurren Lagan, Gueria in Promare, and Guy Shishio in Galgaigar, among many others. And he's a jobber here. <laughs> he's my favorite jobber, but he's a jobber now. <laughs> if you hear a character who has that scream, then that's Nobuyuki Hiyama. You may have also yeah. heard him as Hiei in Yu Yu Hakusho, Uzu Sanagayama in Kill la Kill, Kota Hirano in High School of the Dead, Ikaku in Bleach, and as the voice of Link 
in Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. There's lots of other names that Mecha fans will recognize. Uh, Hideo Ishikawa, who played Ryoma Nagare in Getarobo Armageddon, has a small role in this series. But there is one seiyuu I do wish to mention before we go on to the dub. There are a series of characters who have facial hair that pop up throughout the series. And they're all voiced by one guy, Hiroya Ishimaru. He's probably best known as the voice of Shunsuke Sengoku in Cyber City Oedo, Apachai in Kenichi, the Mightiest Disciple, Mecha fans will know him as Agrippa Maintainer in Turn A Gundam, Dr. Kotaru Hazuki in Don Kugar, but the role that made him famous was that he was Koji Kabuto in Mazinger Z. They went so far as to get the voice actor of the original Super Robot Pilot to play a part in this show. That's how devoted the staff was to the bit. That's fantastic. That's that's amazing. And that passion for this project carries over to the dub. I want to go back to the article in Anime Insider for a bit, because one of the big talking points they had as to why you think you'll love Godanner is that they said it's a real team effort. And Godanner's dub was not recorded like your typical anime dub. And Tiffany Grant mentioned this to me in the interview that I did with her. The way that most foreign dubs work, and this is true if something is being dubbed in America, in France, in Germany, in Italy, etc., you usually have one person in the booth at a time to dub over certain roles. For Godanner, ADV eschewed that method of recording. Instead, this dub was recorded ensemble, meaning they had multiple actors in the booth at once to record the dialogue, just like they do in Japan. Wait, 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 wait. Is that why when Go and Anna get into arguments in the dub, it actually sounds like a real fucking argument? Yep. Hillary Holy Hague and Brett, shit. Hillary Haig and Brett Weaver aren't playing off each other's voice clips. They're actually there bickering with one another. And as a result, any scene where two characters are having a heated exchange or a tender moment together sounds more natural. I don't know why more dubbing studios don't do this. I understand why. I guess it's either cheaper or a little less strenuous when it comes to scheduling. But what Tiffany told me was that this method of recording was actually faster than what they would do back in the day if they were just just do it the typical dubbing way. Yeah, it would make sense too. And it's not like... It's interesting... From my brief time when I was studying animation, I was doing a couple internships, I always found it interesting that dubs didn't just take that approach. Because when it comes to native language animation, usually you do see that. You do see, like, even in, like, behind-the-scenes stuff for, like, Cartoon Network Studios, like, for Ed, Ed, and Eddie, or the Justice League Unlimited, they would usually have anywhere between two to four actors in a booth at the same time recording stuff together. So I never understood why dubs never took on that same role. It didn't make sense to me. But the fact that they actually went through ensemble recording for the show, it, it really is a delight to find out, because one of my favorite aspects of the show, particularly of the dub, is seeing those moments of 
bickering between Go and Anna. It really plays out damn well. Uh, and there's tons of people who I'm sure will maybe scoff at the idea of like little things like this making a bigger difference in the performance for a dub. No, I've seen enough dubs where I can tell you this makes a difference. It's palpable. And of course, we can't talk about the dub, not just the production side. And, you know, the decision to have all these actors in the booth at once, something I wish we would see more of. But we also have to talk about the cast as well, because this was recorded in the mid-2000s at what I call ADV's golden age, when they produced so many actors who are still active today or lasted a long time in the industry. Oh, Absolutely. You know, some of the names that are listed here. You already mentioned Brett Weaver and Hillary Haig. They're still active for sure. And, of course, you mentioned Tiffany Grant, and she's still active in the industry as well. But, of course, you got a... Do you want to list off the actors? Do you want me to? You do your thing, man. I list them off in the Tiffany Grant interview, but just to give you... Just to throw some names out there who are in this dub. Monica Rial, Tiffany Grant... Greg Ayers, Chris Ayers, may Chris rest in peace. Kira Vincent Davis, Mike Vance, Blake Shepard, Brittany Karbowski, Christine Outen, Chris Patton, John Swayze, Sasha Paysinger, Rob Mungle, Nancy Novotny, Lucy Christian. The list goes on and on. Yeah, for real. It's, it's just fantastic seeing some of these. Like, even, like seeing Cynthia Martinez in the credits. And this was at a time when Cynthia was slowly starting to transition, if I remember correctly, less from voice acting to more behind-the-scenes stuff. But still seeing her as a voice credit in the show was fun as hell. Especially because, if I remember correctly, I think Cynthia was the dub voice for... um, What's her name? Uh, Slayers. What's her name? Lena Inverse. Yes, she's Lena. So just even seeing that, just, you know, it, it fills me with so much joy seeing this cast and just hearing all their performances. Like you said, this was peak ADV. It's such a fun performance that each of them gives. You could tell that they're having a good time doing this project together. There's plenty of points where I actually prefer the dub voices over the original Specifically, Brett Weaver is go over Takeyuki Kondo. And I mean no disrespect to him. I think Takeyuki Kondo does a great job on the Japanese side. But Tiffany Grant told me that the decision to cast Brett Weaver as go was an executive decision on Matt Greenfield. And God bless Matt for that one. Because Brett Weaver is having the time of his life as go. Yeah, he really is. He's... It's infectious to hear uh, him yelling out the attacks and just yelling commands at people. Even when he's telling people to, like, get the hell out of his way, you could tell, like, Brett is just, he's chewing the fat a little bit, but it's its in the best way possible. It's, it's fantastic. Oh, my favorite scenery-chewing moment of him, it's from the episode where Go and Anna are stranded on that island with the dragliner team. And there's a scene where Go has to remove a bunch of trees that are in the way to create a runway for the dragliner, and he does it in the Danner unit. And in the Japanese side, it's your typical heave-ho, you know, yo shot, yo shot, like that. In this case, like, Go's like, hey, take this, and that. Like, he's just going on and on and on. <laughs> Even when, like, they pan away from him, you can still hear him screaming, like, 
they must have loved his take so much they just kept it in and like god i love that i just love everything about that yeah no it's moments like that that make dubs worth it uh like when you hear like characters even like sort of speaking under their breath and even if that like speaking under the breath isn't necessarily like in the sub but if it works for the scene just let it play out it's one of the reasons why i really love the konosuba dub because there's little moments in it where kind of similarly to the bigata hk dub there's little things that sort of get said under people's breath that if you catch it's like oh Oh, that's kind of subversive. That's kind of fucking great. <laughs> I also love Chris Patton in this dub doing his best pip-pip-cheerio-British accent. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> the accents on some of these performances are ridiculous, you know? Hey, um, hey Marcy Ray's Russian accent, uh, she voiced Ekaterina, her Russian accent is top-notch. It is. It, it, it definitely encapsulates the dummy-mommy energy that Ekaterina has. <laughs> One dub voice that I loved more than the original also was uh, Laura Chapman as Kiriko. Yeah, yeah, no. Laura does a fantastic job. Um, and like you said, you know, it's, again, the same MILF energy. It's just, she captures it so damn well. But in those moments of vulnerability, it's it's conveyed so, so masterfully along with animation that's already been done. It's so... It's so expressive and fantastic. Everybody just does a great job in this show. Uh, and like you said, rest in peace, Chris Ayers, man. I really, I fucking miss him, man. I think, though, like, one of my favorite ensembles pieces, though, are the Bridge Bunnies or Maintenance Crew. Rob Mungle plays the leader, Shibaksa, the lead engineer. I did not know that was him. Because I am so used to Rob Mungle doing his goofy, like, Ed Winnish sort of voice. But he, yeah. he's just, he sounds like an actual legitimate car mechanic. Yeah, he does. He pulls it off really well. And you also mentioned, you know, what's it called? Uh, like the bridge buddies in general. Hearing Mike Vance on the bridge as well, uh, as Kagemaru, uh, just sort of yelling orders and everything um, is fantastic as well. This is not a knock against this dub. This is, like, something that I have a problem with in most English dubs. A lot of the times when a character has to shout an attack name or scream an attack name in a robot show, they don't come anywhere near close to the Japanese side, and it's not a fault of anyone in particular. It's just how dubs are. But in the case of Godanner, this is the closest I've seen a show come to capturing that crazy, hot-blooded energy of the Japanese just screaming the attack names. Yeah, I've yet to see the sub for the show. I've only ever seen it dub. But if Brett Weaver's indication alone, uh, performance is any indication alone, yeah, I can honestly believe that. I think, though, my favorite moment in the dub, though, for, like, a single line read comes from Monica Riala's Mira. Because Mira starts off as an amnesiac. So they, she gives her, like, a very curious, innocent, childish voice. But at the halfway point, after Mira regains her memories, in the same line read, her voice just drops and becomes more adult and mature. And that was just a moment that made my jaw drop. And, like, wow, that was just an absolute... I don't know if it was editing or spur of the moment, but it's a great little moment of acting in this dub. Yeah, it's subtle, but it works really damn well. And I think it really contrasts really nicely against Anna, who, you know, is always so hot-blooded and so emotional. And just hearing that maturity come from Mira when 
finally does kick back in. It's like, oh, it's no wonder why Go felt the way he did about her. And no wonder Anna would be insecure about Mira sort of being back to herself. This may sound like it's just an endless Go Danner love fest from us, but really, you just have to watch it. Dub or sub, this show is awesome. Yeah, I, I do have to say, you know, I've been on a few episodes of the podcast of you, uh, and there are times where I'm exasperated by a show, there are times where I'm sort of uh, enamored by what a show can put together, there are times where I want to be critical. I think even just having, you know, rewatched it again and trying to take down notes and just trying to remember everything that I sort of felt while watching it. It's hard for me to be critical of this show. I'm sure if maybe if I were to nitpick, I could probably think of a couple of things. And I'm sure you have notes that are a little more extensive than mine that might, but God damn, it's, it's hard for me to say something bad about Godanar. It really is. It's hard for me to say something bad about the dub too. Like, there isn't a casting choice that I disagree with. There isn't a performance that I would say is weak. Everyone in this dub gave it their all. They really did. And it just shows. It's such a fun time. And I feel like, sort of in the way, like, maybe in the uh, Onigai Sensei, where, like, I felt maybe I was maybe repeating myself a little bit in terms of, like my grievances with the show i feel like i may have the same problem with this episode but the opposite i I hate i really like the show man i don't know how much more i could (laughs) and we're not even like halfway through about discussing like the individual aspects of the show but yeah no it's just it's fantastic but maybe we should move on from like the voice acting to something else so we can just gush even more (laughs) and so we now come to the meat of the subject at hand. The main discussion as to what makes Go Danner such a great show. There's a lot of things that I could say about Go Danner that I love. We've already talked about how great its animation is, how much effort was put into its soundtrack, capturing the spirit of a 70s robot show, its voice cast, even the Anna song singers. But I think the best way to go about dissecting Godanner is to simply strip it down to its core and figure out what it is. I have seen people describe Godanner as being a parody of Super Robots online, and yeah, there are elements of parody in there, but I don't think that it's a full-bore parody of Super Robots. The best description of it, to me is that Godanner is a loving, rather goofy, but ultimately sincere tribute to the super robot shows of the 70s, 80s, and even 90s. Do you think that that is a fair assessment? Oh, absolutely. I know we've already made some comparisons to this title already, but Godanar and Diegard feel like two sides of the same coin in terms of mecha anime that came out around this time period in that they both have this sense of sincerity that's balanced off with a sense of um, self-reflection in the genre. But while 
Die Guard in itself may be a little more towards parody. Goldenar is definitely a bit more of an homage to the classics uh, that made uh, mecha anime what it uh, what it was to that point. I would say in particular, what really strikes me as the binding point between the two is how they handle uh, characterization uh, of the crews and pilots behind the mechs. Both of them really take a sincere look at what it takes to sort of do this, whether it's the sort of down-to-earth, uh, more realistic approach of die guards, uh, bureaucracy, and military uh, intertwining, or the more over-the-top, sort of like bombastic, uh, let's shoot first and ask questions later sort of approach of Godinar. But both of them are very sort of very much love letters to the genre, but Goldenar is much more so than Die Guard, for sure. Die Guard is more satirical in its nature. Like, it's satirizing both the silliness of super robots, as well as satirizing the nature of government bureaucracy and office politics. With Godanner, I don't see any satire. There is elements of parody, but in terms of formula, in terms of how the episodes are structured, this is very much a tribute to those shows. And we can once again attribute that to the show's writer, Hiroyuki Kawasaki, who wrote several of the Brave series, so he knows how to format a show like Godanner. Yeah, it absolutely shows, you know, the way they handle um, threats, uh, the way they, uh, what's it called, deal with, like, uh, to a much lesser extent, like, uh, inter-office politics, so to speak, and inter-departmental relationships within the base, when to focus on B-plots versus when to focus on the larger picture of external threats of mimetic beast, um, the timing is just perfect with the way everything happens in this show. Uh, I know we mentioned uh, earlier in the podcast um, how this is one of those shows where like, I didn't need the three-episode rule to see if I can get into this show. That consistency of pacing and storytelling is consistent throughout the entire series. I don't think there's a moment where it feels like there's a beat that's being skipped uh, when it comes to conveying things, uh, both narratively and visually. The series just hits. That's sort of the first thing I can immediately praise Godanner for, and this really clicks upon every rewatch. I don't believe in the three-episode rule. I will always watch something from start to finish, no matter how good or how bad it gets. I am just coming off of reviewing both Earth Girl Arjuna and Pride of Orange. I have stared into the abyss of what bad anime can be, and I can recognize bad writing when I see it. Not so in Godanner. Every choice, every decision made is made with such passion and precision. Going back to the three-episode rule, the first three episodes of Godanner are some of the most tightly written you'll ever see. If you are not hooked into the show after the end of those three episodes, I don't know what to tell you. Because so much stuff happens in those three episodes to whet the viewer's appetite for more. First episode, 
We immediately open up with the war against the mimetic beasts, the fated meeting between Go and Anna, a flash forward into the future where they get married, the mimetic beasts attacking and interrupting their marriage, Go leaping into battle and Anna discovering the Neo-Oaxer, the two of them combining, and the sudden reappearance of Go's ex, Mira. The second episode gives us a glimpse into Go and Anna's married life, the chemistry that they have together, them bickering back and forth, and ultimately the lengths Go is willing to, um, go to in order to protect the one he loves. The third episode introduces all of the international pilots and right away establishes their personalities, their robots, and what they're all like together. And those first three episodes should be a standard as to how you can hook in a viewer. All killer, no filler, just bang, 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 get in there, write that. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely wild how how efficiently like everything comes together uh, from a production standpoint in terms of like portraying this narrative. And what's wild to me, right, is that even in that amazing summary you did of the first three episodes, you still didn't touch on everything that happens in those episodes. Like, you didn't really touch on the establishing of the family dynamic and Anna goes home once they start living together. You didn't discuss the fact that they sort of uh, show the fact that Koji has wound up in a hospital. Dude, let's not spoil everything. I'm just hit, I'm just giving the <laughs> cliff notes vision to the people. <laughs> But we will talk about Koji, though. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, indeed. Oh, but yeah, no. Just to further compound on the point, yeah, no. Um, everything is just so tight in, in Goldenar. And I know we mentioned this earlier. It's we. There are definitely things that aren't perfect about the show. But damn, is it hard to not gush about Goldenar, man. It's just... It's just always on point with everything it does. What is so great about Godanner is its pacing. With so much stuff that happens in those episodes, you'd think that it would be too much for the viewer to take in. That you won't be able to keep up with all of the layers that are constantly being added one on top of the other. But Godanner understands when to take breaks. It knows when to step on the gas and when to lighten up. Yeah, no, it absolutely does. It's those little moments of downtime where we take a break away from the hot-blooded action or dramatic tension or over-the-top comedy, and we get to know our characters a little better. We, of course, ridicule anybody who says, unlike other mecha anime, this one is about the character and not the robots, because those people don't watch mecha anime. They probably just don't watch anime in general, but let's, let's ignore that for now. Because every mecha anime will focus on the characters, and Godanner is no exception. Off the top of my head, I could name you 30 different characters in this show, and yet all of them are given a moment to shine. Not an I undotted or a T uncrossed with this cast. Yeah, it's really true. You know, again, we're gonna be I'm gonna be making another comparison to Die Guard, but 
damn, does Godanar do a good job of letting everybody have a little moment to shine, particularly moments that I do remember. Uh, Nate mentioned downtime in the show, the pit crew for uh, Godanar base uh, has some of the best little moments in the show when the show does decide to sort of like give it uh, time to breathe. In particular, I really love the interactions between uh, some of Boss's underlings and their little romantic sort of hijinks amongst one another. It's really endearing to see uh, who gets entangled romantically with whom uh, and how they poke fun at each other, very playfully, of course, uh, in between uh, sort of uh, action-packed scenes. It's really endearing as hell. And even the main cast as well, like when they have their moments just sitting around the table eating dinner, especially as certain characters come back into the picture. There's moments of levity in between the drama uh, where Go and Anna uh, and Mira and Go's brother are just eating dinner with their cat. Who just It's just charming. Also, the cat, too. The cat gets a fair amount of play. Peen peen. And it's wild that I'm saying that about a show like this. Even the cat gets character development it's fantastic but the spotlight of course is on our two main characters go saruwatari and ana aoi who do you want to talk about first let's talk about go okay i'll i'll leave yeah go ahead go to me is something special for a super robot show because On the surface, he looks and acts like your typical Super Robot Show pilot. Your Ryoma Nagares, your Koji Kabutos, your Duke Freeds, and so forth. He's this hot-blooded, I-fear-no-death, damn-the-torpedoes, I'll-fight-until-my-last-breath attitude. But deep down, Go is a broken man. He's in his early 30s in the show's present period, and he has witnessed several of his partners die on the battlefield. The man is suffering from PTSD, even though he doesn't show it, because he always has this tough, iron-bodied exterior. But deep down, he's deeply shaken. And when Anna enters into his life, it feels like there's a hole that's been plugged inside him, that he finally has a shoulder to lean on. Yeah, it, it absolutely feels that way. And you could see it from the first moment that they interact with each other on the battlefield. The way he catches her from falling and just... There's a moment where it clicks when he's holding Anna in his arms. You could just see like there's a connection between them. Um, and the way that that connection plays out Uh, as the series unfolds, even through their moments of marital strife. It's really touching to behold. Uh, I remember you had asked me what I thought of the series prior to watching it, especially with me having more recently been married. Seeing Go, since we're focusing on him in particular, Go's moments of vulnerability outside of the battlefield because that's really the only time you'll see him truly be like the hot-blooded hero that usually is expected of this genre um is when he's in combat 
but when he's not in those moments, and even in combat, there's moments where things don't work out for him. But when he has those moments of vulnerability, whether they're played for laughs or they're played for dramatic tension, it's really clear to see that there was a lot of thought and effort put into making Go a relatable person. I think it's easy to look at Go, especially in posters or splash art, uh, and especially with his wide chest, his broad shoulders, his uh, humorously large chin, um, that Go is a character who is just stern stuff and is very one-noted. But especially when... A certain other character comes back into his life, and I think we'll talk about her in a moment. When you see him dealing with conflicted feelings about not only being married, but also being back on the battlefield with somebody he thought he lost, it's those moments of vulnerability that I think make Go shine as a character. Because it's not often where I feel like, particularly in more recent viewings of anime, especially since I've started doing the podcast with you as a guest, that I've seen a protagonist that feels as relatable as Go, uh, particularly when it comes to his marital issues. And it's just really nice to see. A lot of the old super robot pilots like your Domo and Kashus, your Gai Shishios, your Kaminas, those are all characters that you're supposed to look up to, that you want to be like them, these brave heroes who are willing to put everything on the line for those who are close to them, their friends, their allies, even their enemies who they believe can be redeemed. The more real robot pilots are sort of meant for those that you can relate to. Some of the Gundam protagonists, the likes of Amuro Ray, Judao Ashta, Garrod Ran from Gundam X, Go somehow manages to be both. You can relate to him in that he is a man in his 30s who's going through a hard time, but you can also look up to him not as a robot pilot, but as being a family man. Go does not fear death. He fears the death of others. He fears losing those whom are close to him. But my favorite moment from Go that happens later on in the series, he is forbidden from getting in the Danner for reasons I don't want to get into. And so, out of frustration, when the Danner is grounded, he gets into the cockpit and starts up the Danner unit. He doesn't launch it. He just sits in the cockpit and puts his hands on the controls just to vent his frustrations. It's just that feeling of helplessness that he has. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, there's moments where Go will mourn the loss of people around him. Uh, and there's one in particular, again, I don't want to jump the gun but his moments with this other character that'll probably come up after we discuss anna are some of the most heart-wrenching because you can see go is the kind of person who for the sake of others especially like you said he's afraid of losing other people and he has a strong sense of duty 
Go suppresses a lot of his pain. He pushes it down for the sake of doing what he feels is right for those around him. And when it comes to the surface, it bubbles over. It's like a geyser. He can't hold it back. Um, and it's really, it's painful to see, but it's also deeply endearing to see a character um, that's capable of showing grief in such a profound way. It's really touching. Um, and it makes those moments when he and Anna overcome their traumas together much more impactful. That which does not kill you makes you stronger. Or perhaps, what doesn't kill you is just killing you slowly. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. But that leads us into the woman whom Go loves dearly. And the light of his life, Anna Aoi. And I wrote an article for Mecha Alliance, and I'll link to it in the description. Anna is the opposite of Go in every sense of the word. If Go is the jaded robot pilot in his 30s who is dealing with grief and loss, Anna is the young teenage girl with stars in her eyes. She wants to be a robot pilot, and in the very first episode, her desire and skills as a robot pilot are actually pretty cleverly foreshadowed. Oh yeah, absolutely. When, she, when we see uh, her piloting one of those robots for PE class? Yeah, no, it comes through really well. I mean, they even make this sort of uh, joke that, you know, one of her friends sort of did this thing teasingly where like, oh, if you could beat Anna in soccer using the, the robots that they pilot at the school, you get a chance at dating her. But Anna's never lost a match, ah! which, which is fantastic because the way that gets carried over into the lady, later episodes, when Anna has to undertake official training to be an official military-grade pilot, and how quickly she catches on to being a pilot of military level is, it is astounding. Uh, you mentioned Goal. Uh, being a sort of jaded sort of figure, especially in the face of all the loss he's uh, endured. When he finds out that Anna it can surpass him in certain areas uh, with the mecha testing, it, it blows his mind. And it's amazing just to see just how hungry she is to not only achieve her dream, but to prove to both herself and Go just how capable she is as a pilot uh, and as a member of Goldaner Base. She represents and embodies that that sense of hunger and youthful fire that the base desperately needed. They desperately need Anna more than anybody else because that sense of morale that she brings, that new energy she brings, it's just the impetus for so much growth for everybody else in the in the base, and it's fantastic. The scene where she stands on the railing of the Danner base hangar and looks up at the Neo-Oaxer as a show of determination that she is willing to be a robot pilot, both to and for her husband, really encapsulates her character. She wants to be a robot pilot, and it was sort of hinted at that she was training to be one, but the mimetic beast attack, coupled with her marriage to Go, 
kind of forced her into the robot prematurely, but Anna will get into the robot. And I want to talk a little bit about the robots for a bit, because we didn't talk about them enough in the animation segment. Both the Danner and the Oaksir are meant to be reflections of Go and Anna, both literally and figuratively. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, I think there are jokes that could be made over the years of gendered robots or particularly robots with like certain more feminine attributes. But when you watch a show like Goldener and you see so much of the show is euphemisms or visual metaphors for people coming together to solve their problems. You can't not be charmed by the design language that is reflected in the mechs versus the characters that pilot them. And Godener and Oaksir uh, with Anna and Go, it's just, it's an absolute chef's kiss. Go's broad chest, you know, big chin, his big sense of bravado, it's all echoed in the Godener. And when you see its strengths in battle and how they're complemented by the Oaksir's uh, unique uh, sense of agility and sense of sort of its fighting style in terms of like pacing and cornering enemies versus the the rough and tumble brawler style that Go has with the with the Godener. It's really fun just to see both characters doing their things separately even before they combine to make the twin drive mode. It's fun as hell. Prox, I don't know if you looked this up, but uh, the names of the robots, the Danner for Go and the Neo Oaksir for Anna, are plays on the Japanese words for husband and wife. No idea, but that's fantastic. And something about the Danner is that the Danner doesn't have any special weapons. No Gatling cannons, it doesn't have a sword, an axe, a hammer, it doesn't have any guns or rifles or missiles or drills. It's just sheer brute strength. Meanwhile, the Oaksir, it's more of like a support unit. It has two attacks. The Angel Wall, which deploys a barrier to protect the robots from any projectiles, and the Gravity Bomber, which is just a Hadouken. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And the two robots combine to form the twin drive mode, which is a bigger, beefier version of the Danner, and it has two finishing attacks. The first is the Heartbreaker, which is a giant-ass fire punch that slams it to its opponent's body, and a la the Big O's Piston Punch fires an injection into the Mimetic Beast's body and paralyzes it. And the second half of its finisher is called the Soul Breaker. It's a rider kick. It really is. It's one of the best rider kicks I've ever seen. Oh my in god! Anything. It looks so cool. I'll, it's I'll just so hype. I'll just play the meme from Zero One. <clears throat> a jump to the sky turns to a rider kick. As basic as both the Danner and Oaksir are, they are effective. And we'll talk about the other robots when we get to the international pilots. 
But let's go back to Anna. Anna, like Go, undergoes an incredible transformation of her character. She goes from a young, naive schoolgirl to stars in her eyes to at the halfway point, she reaches her lowest point when she feels that Go really isn't loyal to her. I don't want to say, like, she feels he's not being loyal to her or she feels cheated on. It's just that she feels unimportant to Go. Yeah, and I think if we're getting to this part of Anna's character arc, it might be time to bring up Mira. Well, I want to say, the way she finishes the show is absolutely fantastic. From her lowest point, she ultimately learns that she has to grown up. And, mild spoilers for the ending, but the last we see of her, she's a full-grown adult, ready to take the burden and responsibility of being both a wife and a super robot pilot. Anna gets pulled in so many different directions throughout the show, but at the end, she comes out on top. And I don't mean on top in that way, you sick freaks. No, but she really does come far. Uh, and, you know, we mentioned this briefly earlier about how everybody gets their moment to shine in the show. Um, it is jumping the gun a little bit, but I won't get into details, but I will say the ending that this show gets, you get to see everybody's character arc come to completion. And I think it's really touching. We'll get more into that later. But yeah, this show really does love its characters enough to give everybody their time to shine. Even at the end. It's it's really great. So let's go to Mira. And I have to say, I don't want to say that Mira is wasted potential. Because she does do a lot in the show. I think the problem is that Mira kind of gets lost in the shuffle of the show. Because the show has to juggle... So many plots, so many characters, that I think that it doesn't really do enough with Mira, but it still does a lot. I feel like I'm inclined to agree. I like Mira as a character, but I feel like Mira is one of those characters, although it's not as bad as some other anime I've seen, where Mira represents more of an obstacle in the form of a person than she is a character. And that's not to say that she isn't a character, too. She does have moments where she gets to shine, and there are moments of dramatic intention involving her. But especially when she first comes back, Mira is not so much a character that is worked with but an obstacle that has to be worked around. And she's one of the major obstacles that Go and Anna have to overcome in their relationship. Because as you mentioned, at her lowest point, Anna feels unimportant to Go, and the catalyst for that insecurity is Mira. Well, to give you a backstory, it's established that Mira was Go's ex-girlfriend, she passed during the Great War with the Mimetic Beast, but is brought back to life for reasons that are actually explained in the show. She spends the first part of the show being an amnesiac, and amnesia is a plot device, can go wrong if handled poorly. I think the show handled it well. I just feel that she's in that amnesiac state for a bit too long. 
she, we don't see her as the fully functioning Mira until the later half of the show, and even then, I feel that she's kind of barely in it. Like, she doesn't really push Anna to be better than her, except for, like, a few episodes. I don't want to say, like, she's just there, but her potential is being sort of a third wheel or a driving wedge between Go and Anna wasn't fully utilized, but in the grander scheme of things, it's just a minor complaint. If anything, it just speaks to how healthy Go and Anna's relationship is to the point where even after Anna is at her lowest point and practically abandons Go, Go welcomes her back with open arms. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And you know, you mentioned before how, you know, not Anna doesn't necessarily feel cheated on by Go, and even when she goes away, there's no sense that Go is going to betray Anna, um, despite the fact that Mira at one point does have to step in and be on the battlefield with Go so Twin Drive can happen. But there's not the sense that Go has reconnected with an ex like romantically. It's very much like we understand the circumstances are what they are. We will do what we have to for the sake of the mission, but it's not to the point where there's like romantic tension between them. And I think that speaks more heavily to Gold's character and then maybe the writing of this show. And it is one of those things where, again, especially with Mira being amnesiac for a good part of the show, it's not like she's poorly written. But I would say that maybe that's the weakest point of utilization for her. Like, they really could have potentially played up the idea that even if it's only one-sided, one of them wants to be back together with the other. But that doesn't necessarily quite play out. And again, that's the goal's credit. But it does feel like a note that may have been missed uh, on behalf of the writers. But considering how much does happen in the show... It is forgivable, especially because that low period for Anna, a lot of it is an internal struggle uh, when she does leave Godanner based. And the way that internal struggle gets hashed out, I think, plays out fairly well, even if it's with a character that doesn't need to exist. I don't think, like, he's a very minor character. I forgot his name, but, like, Anna's old crush. Oh, Hedebo. Yeah, I don't know if he necessarily needs to exist, but he's another one of those characters where, like, you know, we're talking about Mira being more plot device than character, but she's mostly a character still, even if underutilized. Hidebo is just a plot device. The good thing about Hidebo is that we don't, we're not with him for too long. He's just there for a few episodes, and then the show forgets about him, and probably for the best. I will agree with you that they could have used Mira a bit more as a dividing wedge, but I think that's also not the point of her character. She's sort of meant to be the girl that Anna is supposed to be as a robot pilot, not so much a romantic interest. You know what, that's fair. That's fair, especially when you consider, at one point, they're both on the battlefield together, uh, one in Oaksir and the other in Neo-Oaksir. The Go-Oaksir, um, the Go-Oaksir. yes. You could definitely see, obviously, the design similarities, but there's also 
enough differences in them where, yes, one is supposed to mature into the other. You could definitely see potentially within both Anna and Mira aspects of each other's personality that play out uh, in such a way where you could potentially have seen Mira as maybe the same young stars in her eyes pilot that Anna is when she first comes on and vice versa. And especially the way Mira's personality when they show her in scenes where she's younger contrast with one of the other pilots on the Danner base. Um, you actually interviewed her voice actress. Um, well, I think, do you want, do you want to transition into talking about Chizuru? Yeah. Let's talk about Chizuru. There are some characters that are meant to be third wheels. Some do it better than others. I've already mentioned Tessa and Full Metal Panic and how even though the show desperately wants her to be in a love triangle with Sosuke and Kaname, it's clear that Tessa's just there to be the third wheel of that group. Shizuru is also a bit of a third wheel, but that's not a bad thing. Her own motivation comes from her obsession with Go, but being unable to tell him that she loves her. So I think certain tropes within anime are not even just necessarily played out. I think some of them aren't written well. And I think one of the ones that falls into these trappings is the Sundere. You have characters who are really strongly written Sundere's, like Taiga from, uh, what's it called? Toradora. Yes, from Toradora. I'd say Kurisu from uh, Steins Gate. Yes. And I think those characters are exemplary of what can be endearing about a Sundari character, especially when they do finally start to show vulnerability. Um, and then there are very poorly written ones that just feel like they're there just for the sake of being, oh, a Sundari. Shizuru leans more towards the stronger side. Not as strongly as Taiga, but I think it works well for her. When you see the flashbacks that she has, especially considering her feelings for Go and how those get played out on the battlefield when there are Shizuru-focused episodes, and the way she also feels that she needs to prove herself as being useful on the battlefield, considering her mech's abilities and how specialized they are, I think it works well. I think it's one of those things where, despite the fact that she kind of roadblocked herself into potentially having something more with Go, the fact that it didn't go anywhere doesn't hinder the fact that there's a deep sense of respect and compassion that Go has for Shizuru. And I think for Shizuru, um, having grown into the character that she has, that that's enough for her, even if she never really got to truly say it. Knowing that that's there with him, uh, I think is enough for her. She undergoes quite an interesting character arc. Because the first half, it feels like she's desperate to prove her worth to the Danner base. Now that Go and Anna are Danner base's top pilots with uh, Shizuru's partner. And I want to immediately follow up with him after we mm -hmm. talking about Shizuru. Yes. yes, because he's great. But let's keep going. 
she's always throwing herself out there, showing that she can still be useful, even without Koji, even without Go. She is strongly, fiercely independent. Hell, her catchphrase is one that may sound awfully familiar to some of you. Her catchphrase is... Who the hell do you think I am? I can't get confirmation. I want to say that's an Ashtano Joe reference. Like, everybody talks about how that's Kamina's catchphrase in Gurren Lagann, but Shizuru was saying it four years earlier. I really hope I can find out what that's a reference to. Uh, I'm sure you'll be able to dig it up, you know, if you harass some of the people in the Discord. Um... But yeah, no, it, it suits her character so damn well, especially in some of those early episodes where you really see, like I was saying, you know, her specialty with her mech is she's a sniper. She's a sniper, she's a gunner, but particularly she's a sniper. And once she's out of ammunition, she really doesn't have much use. But the fact that she will still put herself in harm's way to try to get shit done, it's it's cool as hell. It's also probably unexpectedly why she ends up in the position that she does. But it's really fun to see Shizuru's battles because usually when she is having them, it's usually a back uh, fight where her back is pressed up against the wall and she barely scrapes by. And I I don't know about you, but as much as I love the big bombastic fights with like the flashing finishing moves and whatnot, I personally love fights where the hero barely gets by. Her last stand at the end of the first half is something, I'll tell you that. Yeah, no, no, it's fantastic. And, you know, I don't want to say too much because I don't want to spoil anything for viewers or listeners who may not have seen the show yet but i will say especially considering how the rest of the crew relates to her particularly go uh goes ptsd i will say we were talking before previously about mira and how mira feels potentially like unused potential in a character would you agree with me in saying that some of what went into Mira could have maybe just been put into Shizuru? I can definitely see that, but I think they're both strong on their own. Because in the second half, even if Shizuru is in a reduced role, she still finds ways to support both Go and Ana. She's accepted that she's no longer the top dog of the Danner base. And that's fine, because she can still find ways to be useful both on and off the battlefield. Oh, you're absolutely right. And especially, you know, we were talking before about Anna's recovery from her low point. Shizuru's very pivotal in that. Uh, both Shizuru and Go's brother are very pivotal in helping Anna sort of get back on her feet and realize, like, no, you, you don't have to feel the way you do. Uh, and you don't have to be alone in facing it either. She always finds a way, because who the hell mm -hmm. do you think she is? We've pretty much gone over, like, the core casts. I really want to get through the supporting cast as quick as possible. But we gotta talk about the show's resident butt monkey, Tetsuya Koji. 
Yeah, Koji. Best character in show. Best character. If there is any parody in this show in terms of spoofing super robot heroes, it's good old Tetsuya Koji. Because yeah. Koji runs in without a second thought. Everybody has this hot-blooded sense of recklessness, but they also understand the importance of, oh, I don't know, a tactical retreat. Koji, though, uh, he didn't get the memo. He will always charge in without thinking and usually ends up foobar. In fact, it's a running joke that whenever Tetsuya Koji screws up, he's usually left completely incapacitated and the cat and the characters will say koji's dead and they immediately not have the tamino cut in and he says i'm not dead yet i'm not dead yet <laughs> it's so fantastic also it, it it really helps too that you know we were talking about the strength of the character designs in this show if especially if you were just to show the first few minutes of golden r to a person and you were to say who's the main character tetsuya's got fucking protagonist written all over his face he's got protagonist hair he's got protagonist grin he's got protagonist fucking like eyebrows everything about koji screams like if this were any other anime he's the he's the guy but Koji's not the guy, and it's fucking hilarious. Well, you could mistake him for the main character, considering that his name, Tetsuya Koji, is a combination of the two main heroes from the Mazinger series. Tetsuya Tsurugi from Great Mazinger, and Koji Kabuto from Mazinger Z. <laughs> Fantastic. I didn't know that. I didn't know that little piece of trivia, but that's so goddamn fitting. And he's also voiced by Nobuyuki Hiyama, as we mentioned earlier. What more could you want from him? Um, you know what? One more explosion. I could want one more explosion. But yeah, no. Koji's great, and then, like you said, we predominantly mentioned like the core group of characters. Supporting cast is great as well. Everybody gets their moment to shine. Um, personally, amongst supporting cast, if we're just focusing on the base still, I love Anna's mother. Anna's mother is great. I know it may be wrong, but I'm in love with Anna's mom, as a character anyway. I love Kiriko as a character. I've often said, I would say that I prefer female authority figures to male authority figures. Because male authority figures... As fun as they can be, from your gunnery Sergeant Hartmans to your Bright Noahs, they're still a man at the end of the day. They're very stoic, very rigid, very tough, ironclad. Having a female authority figure in that same role adds an interesting wrinkle to them because you get some traits that a woman has that a man doesn't, and she can bring them to that position of authority. And that's what you get with Kiriko. She is so good as an authority figure in this show. Yeah, no, it's, um, between her design and her presence, Kiriko is like this pleasant mashup of, what's her name from Onegai-sensei? Mizumi uh, Kazami. And the general 
from Akka 13. Mauve was her name. Yes. Yes. She hits both between characterization uh, and character design. She hits nice notes between those two. You have that sense of understood and commanded but not not demanded authority from her. You walk into the room, you feel her presence. When she passes by, you notice her, you respect her, and you respect her authority, but she doesn't demand it from you. When she's in charge, when she's leading things on the bridge, you respect what it is she's saying. She, you, you do what she tells you to. When shit doesn't go in her favor, the moments of vulnerability she has, especially as they relate to uh, Anna uh, and Go, uh, and seeing things when they do fall apart between them uh, at their low points, it's touching as hell because you get this paternal instinct from her that just resonates so deeply within the characters, uh, even when she tries to hide it from the rest of the bridge, just those moments in the locker room where she's either alone or she's with the other bridge captain. Just they, go, they work so damn well. Uh, and it's just fantastic to see that in a character. And she's just the right amount of fan service, too. We had mentioned this before about how the show knows when to pop its fan service out and when to draw the line at the more serious moments. She's another fantastic example to do that. You'll occasionally get jizz, jiggle physics with her when they do want to play up something for laughs or the just show off. Like, scene. Yes, of course. But when things are serious and they let, they let her do her thing without the jiggle physics, and it's fantastic. The thing I like most about Kiriko, and you mentioned this, whenever things go wrong for the Danner team, she doesn't show anger. She shows more concern than anything, especially knowing that that's her daughter out there. Her best moments, though, aren't the ones on the bridge. It's when she's with Anna, basically giving her sage advice. She's been there. Even if she has never piloted a robot in her entire life, she at least understands the burden of responsibility of being a housewife, tending to a man who served on the battlefield. She really is a mother-knows-best sort of character, and all of the advice that she gives to Anna is one that she can take with her on and off the battlefield. In essence, Kiriko is the anti-Prospera Mercury. Uh, she really is, and I just love seeing her on the base, and in the moments, too, where her and Kagemaru have moments of emotional intimacy, it works really well. Uh, because Kagamaro is another one of those characters like Go, where when you see his design, you see him on uh, the field or on the bridge, he demands respect and you expect certain things of him based on his appearance uh, because he also has that sort of no-nonsense, tough-as-nails, sort of rugged look to him. But he, too, when he has his moments of vulnerability, especially when he sees those moments and Kiriko, um, it's really quite touching. Um, although I will say, it does get a little awkward when a certain other character comes back into the show towards the end of the series. Uh, I won't say who, I don't want to, what's it called, ruin any surprises. But um, yeah, there's sort of a hinting that maybe there's like 
possible romantic tension between Kagemaru and Kiriko, and then somebody comes back into the picture where it's like, mm, maybe that's not going to happen. Continuing on with the supporting characters, I'm pretty sure you want to talk about Lou. I love Lou. Lou is one of the best characters in this goddamn show. Lou has such a fantastic story arc. It might be my favorite story arc of any of the characters in the show. And they all get like great story arcs. But seeing Lou go from, again, another character with stars in her eyes and, you know, like hope and dreams in her heart. And probably more drastically and definitely more traumatically than Anna, how quickly her life turns and how her personality changes and what it is that she wants and pursues in the show, especially after meeting the uh, pilot of the Blade, um, Godanner. Um, what's it? Uh, God, what's that next name? The Blade Guiner? Yes. Yes, especially once she meets Ken and the way her life turns um, in her pursuit of vengeance. It is... It is a really stark contrast to Anna's story um, because Anna is one of these characters that despite her difficulties that she faces still seems to hold the idea of hope and truth in her heart. Lou eschews that. Lou eschews that and the relationship she has with Ken and how he realizes the path that uh, Lou is trying to go down and tries to give her the tools to manage her pain but not become a monster in pursuit of her goals. It's one of the strongest moments in the show, especially when you see how Go and Anna, you know, take her vulnerability in. Um, because you mentioned Go is very much a character defined by his loss and his PTSD. And that's especially true when it comes to people he considers family. When Lou leaves Godanner base and goes off of Ken, it almost breaks him. And I think it's one of the best defining character moments in the show because there's such a strong focus on that sense of family for Go. And Lou was such a pivotal part of that for a few episodes. And the fact that she chooses to walk away from that is heartbreaking, but I think it's also a testament to the show's writing in that it shows you can't bring everybody with you. People have to walk their own path, even if that path leads to pain. Go and Anna's relationship is all about taking your pain and turning it into strength. Lou is taking her pain and channeling it through anger, and that's not healthy. She states very early on that she wants to be a robot pilot, but Go and Anna, knowing what they've gone through, they forbid it, and out of good faith, they don't want to lose another potential pilot on the Danner base. But Lou is defiant, she's rebellious, and considering that she's just a kid, she's like, what, 10? 11? This is a character that could have gone so poorly if put into the wrong hands. But Kawasaki uses Lou's childish naivete to his advantage and takes a girl who loses everything 
and instead of learning to cope with it, turns it her into one of the most complex characters in the entire show. Yes, going on our complex, but one of the most multifaceted characters in the show is a kid. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Seeing lose, you know, emotional deterioration at the loss of the people on the space base, uh, particularly her immediate family, uh, and just seeing how that twist such a charming, innocent character into one that's obsessed with vengeance. And again, how Ken sees his own pain reflected in her and ultimately steers her away or does his best to try to do so um, because he himself recognizes in himself that his loss has turned him into a monster and that in hunting monsters, he's become one. I think it's one of the best characterizations in the show, and particularly how that plays into the show's finale. is It's phenomenal. It's damn well done. I guess we should talk about Ken, although there is something that I did notice when watching Godanner this time around, and I want to segue mm-hmm. this into Ken. Godanner does not have a central antagonist. There is no big bad in the show. Yes, the mimetic beasts are a threat, but there's not like a queen mimetic beast. There's nobody who's manipulating the mimetic beasts to their advantage. They're not meant to be an allegory for like humans polluting the environment or something like that. They're just simply enemies that our pilots have to fight. And I think that the absence of a central villain is to the show's benefit. Because without it, I think you subtract a lot of possible development for both our main and supporting characters. No, I think I absolutely have to agree. You know, when I rewatched the show for the podcast, and then thinking back on it now, especially with what you just said about how there's a lack of a central antagonist in the show... Godinar shares a lot of its thematic and uh, environmental settings and themes with another very popular, older mecha anime. Mecha, I guess technically you could maybe kind of say like Tokusatsu or Sentai, which is uh, Tekaman Blade. Uh, Tekaman Blade also has a very similar environmental sense in terms of aliens who are mostly bestial overrunning the earth little pockets of society still remaining but the earth largely just being either overrun by destruction or aspects of nature reclaiming civilization that used to once dominate uh the land masses the settings are very similar but the fact that Tekaman blade follows a more traditional sense of there is a driving force pushing those beasts in Tekaman Blade to conquer the Earth uh, versus, no, these are just animals. This is just almost like a natural disaster. This is something we're dealing with in the face of just trying to live. Uh, and again, I'm going to compare this to Diegard. I think that's something both Diegard and Godanner do extremely well. This fact that a threat to humanity doesn't need to be a classical villain but rather almost like a disaster that we're just 
having to endure, it does work to its benefit. Because like you said, characterization is allowed to happen. And also in the face of, like we were talking about with Lou um, and Ken versus how they contrast Anna and Go, being that when they do clash against each other, it's not from the sense of antagonism towards each other, but just a clashing of ideas, I think really speaks volumes as to how people can be driven apart by similar circumstances. You know, a lot of people will endure similar traumas, but trauma responses are not the same for people. And seeing that trauma can drive people apart even when they're trying to confront them in the best way each one of them feels is possible, it's a reminder, again, of the spectacular writing of this show. We can all endure the same pain. We're not going to respond to the pain the same. Which sort of leads us into our main villain, or rather he's more an anti-hero. I guess you could say with that description that he is, in fact, Kenuff. <laughs> I had that joke in my back pocket for weeks. Good for you. I'm glad you held on to it. Yeah, Ken, you pretty much took what I was going to say. Ken is sort of meant to be a dark mirror for Go. Because Go lost the woman who was close to him, but Go, I don't want to say he got over it, but he simply took his pain and just sort of walked away from the situation. It's implied in the first episode that he hasn't used the Go Danner outside of one time when he had to direct traffic during a blizzard. <laughs> That's right, I forgot about that, but they did kind of imply that. But the thing is, Go still found ways to be useful around the base. He had a home. He didn't get mad or upset at his loss. He simply decided to move forward, even though it's slowly eating away at him. Ken, meanwhile, is motivated by revenge. He takes his pain and decides to turn it against the mimetic beasts. He doesn't have a moral code. He's just out there looking for the mimetic beast that killed his wife or girlfriend. I they don't they don't really make clear what their marital status was. Wife, girlfriend, partner, whatever. Uh Rosa, even if it means destroying whole environmental sites. Like he fights the mimetic beasts in a chemical plant. I think they're processing like argon in there. It's like a pretty hazardous yeah. chemical mentioned it was something radioactive and i forget what it was but it was like jesus christ you're causing more damage than the beast what the hell ken and he's not evil for evil's sake it's just that his actions are evil but he himself is not a bad person he's just simply a man who is out for revenge and if you watch camelot and linkara you will know revenge is not a noble cause no no it is not Although, I will say, you know, you'd mentioned, you'd mentioned something just now about Ken and how Ken is strictly, and I guess I sort of hinted at this before, like, yes, his outward is revenge, but as you mentioned before, he is very much meant to be a mirror 
for Go, at the end of the day, even if they express it differently, they are both men consumed by their pain. But how that pain gets expressed is just radically different. But I would say more so than Go, Ken is just a man enveloped by pain. And he does not have the means to, to let it out other than violence. Somebody, and it's, it's heartbreaking. Somebody give that man a hug. For real. For yeah. real. He doesn't even have like a first name or a last name. He's not like Ken Sugimori or Ken Akamatsu. He's just Ken. And that's enough. And he's great <laughs> at doing stuff. Especially with swords. Swords and cloaks and crows. That's it. Yeah, he's got an awesome overcoat, too. There's a lot of other characters we can talk about, too. Like, can we also talk about how, in addition to the Danner base, there's a whole bevy of international pilots, and they all get screen time and have their own character arcs, and it's awesome? Yeah, it's fantastic. And it's great, too, because some of them are also really nice analogs or mirrors to Go and Anna. Uh, like, my favorite, uh, base is the Chinese base. Uh, and, you know, we talk about, like, Go being sort of hot-headed in certain aspects. The Chinese crew really mimic Go and Anna in a very similar way in that it's... If you just take the hot-headedness of Go and the more conscientious nature that Anna has, it it's really a nice mirror to the fact that if Go let himself go too far in another direction, whereas it's not pain in the sense of the Chinese pilot, but it's more so his bravado and machismo to a sense, that is also uh, a means of covering up his insecurity. Um, and I think that's fun to see, especially when they do interact together, because they're very much just like, yeah, they're bros. They're on the battlefield. They're bros for one another. Dino base, it's fantastic. I love how all of the international pilots have different dynamics as far as couples go. You already mentioned the Go Diner base with Shukuyu and Mokaku. They're a couple where the male is the dominant one. Contrast them with the Russian team where Ekaterina, the femme fatale, is the dominant one. And Kukretshov is the submissive one. And we gotta talk about their robot, the Volspina. I hinted at this one. Oh, yeah. The Volspina, because every robot in this show consists of two separate units that combine into one big one, with the exception of the Dragliner. Yes. Well, the Volspina gets the award for most ludicrous combination you'll see in an anime this side of Gingeyser. It's wild. It's absolutely wild i don't hate the design <laughs> it has a core robot that is called the volspina and it has an accompanying jet piloted by kukrechov called the slave wing it combines into its twin drive form with the volspina leaping into the air folding its arms forward and the slave wing ramming into its back causing its breasts to expand outward like a pair of torpedoes as if it was a freaking high school of the dead character and its weapon of choice is a laser whip yeah it's kind of great i know we were talking before at one point even before recording the episode like which 
mech designs do you like? Which ones do you not like? I don't hate any of the mech designs, and I know you probably feel very strongly about the Volspeda. I, I kind of like the Volspeda because it, it, it is so over the top. It is so ridiculous. I can't hate it. It, it embraces what it is. It's not my favorite, although I do like its Obari-esque proportions. And I mean, like, oh. it's, again, it's aforementioned High School of the Dead, Triage X kind of breasts are absolutely ludicrous. But again, it doesn't make any apologies for what it is. And I accept that. Yeah, I think that's why I really love it. Like, it's not one of my top three mech designs in the show, but when you embrace your ridiculousness and are just unapologetic for it i can't hate that i really can't in an interview in one of the booklets the writer for the show hiroyuki kawasaki said that the volspina was his favorite because he said it would look really cool in 3d and i'm just looking at that and saying right <laughs> I know they've made, like, figures and models over the years of some of the mechs, but did Volspina ever get a model? Do you know by any chance? No, I wanted to touch on this. Godanner never really had any dedicated toys or model kits. It got some Gachapon and Capsule toys, which I have several of. Um, it got, like, a really expensive Chogokin model kit for the twin drive mode. Uh, more recently, it actually got a really good Modroid uh, kit from Good Smile that I really want to pick up because I love it. Yeah. It's Modoroid, yeah. I actually have a Modoroid of the mech from, uh, what's it called? What's that comedy anime? Um, with the two, uh, Pop, Pop Team Epic. I have the Modoroid of that mech, and I will tell you that the quality of that one is pretty good. So if it's anything based on the quality of the Pop Team Epic mech, um, I'd imagine that the Modoroid for Twin Drive is pretty good too. The way the robots combined, it would be impossible to turn them into toys because it's way too over-the-top and complicated to get anything remotely show-accurate. But the people who were animating the show knew exactly who their audience was. They're not making these robots to be toys for kids. This is for an adult audience, and so let's just make these robots do the craziest shit imaginable in terms of combining. Oh, absolutely. The other couples... I want to rifle through them. For England's pilots, we have Knight and Ellis, who are brother and sister, question mark? Very weird, because, like, their relationship is... They're like royalty, but they're not related by blood. I don't know how that works. I do like how Knight is the closest thing the show has to a pervert. But it's not like he's a pervert as in he's trying to get a peep on the girls changing. No, he's a pimp. Yeah, yeah, he's an unabashed flirt. And the thing about him, too, is that eight times out of ten, if he flirts, he'll get what he wants. It's very rare that somebody turns down his advances in the show. Well, he is a British gentleman, after all. No girl would ever turn down James Bond. Whether it's Sean Connery, Roger Moore, George Lazenby, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan, or Daniel Craig. Yeah, that's true. That's true. If I hear the right accent, I'll get I'll get excited too. I don't blame them. Much to the chagrin of his uh, sister? Question mark Ellis. Yes. Yeah. Probably my yeah. least favorite. But there's one more couple that we have to talk about. There is a couple ah. for America, and the official title says North America, but. Come on. 
Their country symbol is the American flag. And that is the duo of Luna and Shadow. <laughs> they're lesbians. Yes. I was about to say, if they're supposed to be twins with all that tension between them, I was just like, mm. they're No, 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 Bronx, 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 Bronx. They're not lesbians, okay? They're just very good friends. <laughs> yes, and Uranus and Neptune are cousins. I saw the four kids dub. <laughs> Honestly, with this show, their lesbianism isn't played up for sexiness, even though their designs are meant to be sexy. There's a wholesome sincerity to them that these two really do love each other. As the name's implied, though, they are opposite of one another. Luna's the peppy, bubbly one. Shadow is brooding and emotional. Yeah, it's true. Uh, and even their designs contrast, you know, more mask more femme uh, approach in each one of them as well but it is very much played like their love for one another is sincere uh even when shadow does have flashes of aggression that she tries to suppress for the sake of luna uh it doesn't change the fact that you know when uh they are together there is uh sincerity uh in their relationship towards one another it's actually really touching, especially when certain events happen. And yeah, again, don't want to spoil anything, but their relationship is rather charming. And what's funny is that regarding their designs and their robot, the Genesister, there's nothing about their designs that suggests that they're from America. We're not talking like yeah. Texas Mac from Getter Robo. They don't dress up yeah. like cowgirls or like their robot has a cowboy hat and like dual magnums. Now the robot is this weird kind of spindly thing with a bow and arrow a la Rydeen or Razafon. Yeah, honestly, the way their uh, mech is designed, it kind of reminds me of, uh, what's that anime? Brain, Brain Drive, is it? Brain Powered. Yes, it reminds oh. me of some of the mechs from Brain Powered. We'll get to that one on this show someday. Yeah, it definitely kind of reminds you of some of the stuff from Brain Powered. Not quite as organic, but that sense of, like, spindliness and, like, the vast differences between, like, the more prominent proportions on its figure versus the limbs uh, and where they thin out. Uh, it definitely is reminiscent of that kind of design um, philosophy. And we've touched on, like, so many characters. There's one set that you talked about that I want to talk about since you kind of spent a little time on them. Part of the reason why I'm thankful that there is no central villain that we have to hear monologuing is because Go Danner goes out of its way to dedicate whole segments to the Bridge Bunnies. Yeah! Their segments are easily some of the best best in the entire show. It's a crew led by a stern middle-aged man by the name of Shibaksa and his ungrateful underlings who complain about their job. It's fantastic. The boss is the best. I, I adore him so much. There's so much fun to be had with them and I love how they play off each other. Like the whole subplot between the hopeless romantic Morimoto and his clueless girlfriend Hayashi. Morimoto's design is 
basically that of Joe Yabuki from Ashtano Joe, Pompadour and everything. He even does the Ashtano Joe pose from the end of the series where Joe dies. Yeah, he does. Right, fuck. And what's funny about it is that it, it's you don't know that he does it because he just sits down like Joe for a split second and the camera just pans up and then he gets back up and that's it. It's a yeah. nice blink and you miss it reference. You're right, they absolutely do. It's kind of fantastic. You've also got uh, Sugiyama who's always complaining about his wife whom we never see until the end of the series. Yeah, it's true. And uh, the socially awkward Yanagi Sawa. Most of the time, the bridge bunnies are just characters that exist to fill out a roster. But the bridge bunnies actually contribute things to the story. Yeah, they actually do. It's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the I love the antics they have amongst each other, especially in some of the more lighthearted episodes. But the way they'll interact with, like, the pilot crew, like, whether it's in passing, poking fun at uh, Go and Anna, especially Go, uh, for, you know, being a little too busy or running late, you know, after having just gotten married, to the moments where they're desperately trying to repair uh, the mechs so they can go back into battle and the effect that has on the crew and how exhausted they are. It, it, everything just intertwines so well when it does. It's fantastic. There's a whole episode in the second half of the season that's devoted to them, and it's great. Yeah, them dealing with uh, all the trash they, they dug up and had all along, like, the wharf on the base and uh, just, like, the hijinks in between, like, in the cafeteria and everything. Um, it's it's really damn well done. Uh, and it's a nice it's a nice palate cleanser from some of the action and drama that comes before it. It's really well done. There's so much to love about this crew. I love how Shibaksa is the dad of the bunch. Much like Kiriko, he is stern and can be a bit bad-tempered at times, but at the end of the day, he's always one to dispense sage advice, both to our pilots and to the other cast members. There is no bad or unlikable characters in the cast, and the ones that you may deem to be unlikable aren't around for too long. Like, there's so many others we haven't touched on. We haven't touched on Anna's, some of Anna's classmates. We didn't even touch on Go's brother Shinobu and how adorable he is. He's such a cutie. He's such a good boy. He's Even so in the moments where he catches, like, Anna and Lou, like, indisposed. And again, going back to how this show knows when to draw the line at what could be potential fan service moments, but that just don't happen. His moments of, like, like shame or embarrassment of, like, catching them, like, in their, uh, like I said, indisposed moments, it's just fantastic. He's such a good boy. He's they such a good boy. They don't force the fan service moments with Shinobu. They always make him the butt of the joke. They really do. But he has an arc of himself. He looks up to his brother, and in the second half, he says he wants to be just like him. And it's such a fun, wholesome moment. Yeah, it really is. And it sort of adds back to that like sort of like sense of family that the show develops as one of its like B-plots. If anything... I would say Go's brother, at their lowest, is probably the family's anchor. Because he's not, you know, or he's not necessarily on the bridge, even when they do show him briefly in base in a couple moments. But if he's not there, 
sort of doing the little things that matter, like tucking Anna into bed or making sure the dishes get cleaned or like food gets put away or working with Shizuru to get uh, certain uh, Anna uh, back to base on the moped are they would fall apart like there's some characters that are just silent anchors for others uh in group dynamics and he's that and it's fantastic to see it played out regarding him being the butt of the joke that's what you get for looking like suzaku (laughs) there's a reason why this is probably going to be our longest podcast yet because go danner is a show where you can say very little about it, but you can also say a lot about where it goes, what it does. And the best part about it all is that Godanner has an epilogue. The final episode of Godanner shows us where these characters are after the final battle and closing up everything. And honestly, I wish more anime specifically some of the anime originals that we get nowadays, would do this. I just recently finished re-watching My Hime, and I remember not liking the ending the first time around. Second time around, I've come around on it, and I appreciate it for what it did, but My Hime is a show that really could have used an extra episode or two to wrap up some loose end rather than just shoving everything into the final ten minutes of the final episode. With Godanner, though... Everybody gets their moment, everybody has closure, and everybody gets their own happy ending. And I don't think it's hyperbole to say that this is one of the greatest endings to an anime ever. Yeah, I I know we had spoken about this very briefly prior to recording the podcast. I did feel... I had originally mixed feelings about the ending, because I felt like what was the final battle felt a little... And I, I mentioned before, I love the pacing of the show. I felt like the final battle maybe could have breathed a little longer. But regardless of how I felt about the final battle, I agree with you about the epilogue. It's absolutely adorable to see where everybody ends up at the end. Especially because some of those characters, like we mentioned, like Lou, for example, goes down a very dark path to see... Uh, where Lou ends up uh, at the end of everything is actually, it's almost reassuring. It's a nice bookend to her rather dark story. Uh, And even seeing, like you said, some of the characters like the Bridge Bunnies ending up where they do, who ends up as a pilot, who ends up as a commander, who retires, who keeps going. It feels very natural. The progression for everybody feels very natural. It's to the point where it almost makes you want to potentially see a sequel series. The, the show doesn't need one, mind you. But seeing some characters come into their own in the epilogue and how well everything was written, it sort of makes you want to see what some certain characters' adventures would be would they have decided to continue the franchise. Uh, and I think when a show makes you want for more even when its ending feels conclusive, I think that's the mark of good cinema. Because oftentimes, people will have good build-ups, but good climaxes are very rare. And I think having an epilogue for this climax was just, again, another chef's 
kiss moment from the show. I will slightly disagree with you on the final battle, because to me, the point of the final battle was not to end the show with a big bang. It was meant to conclude the story arc of Go and Anna, and I think it did that beautifully. I can live with the final battle not having that big bang as long as it wraps everything up in a nice little bow. And I think that's what Go Danner accomplishes. Everything gets tied up. Nothing feels like it's left hanging. Maybe a few tiny strings here and there, but everything is concluded in such a beautiful manner. Could there be more? Maybe. But to me, this is all we need. Yeah, like I said, you know, I'm relatively satisfied with the conclusion of the show. I think it's one of the stronger ones uh, we've ever reviewed together. The fact that this is somehow a longer recording than our Die Guard episode was, and we had a lot to say about Die Guard, um, I think is a testament to just how pivotal this show was for the mecha genre. Um, And you mentioned, you know, there's some people who really don't understand what it is to really be a mecha anime or a mecha series because they don't understand characterization. You know, it's always about the robots. But um, this show deserves more merits than it gets. And I think especially considering the time frame and when it came out, it's due for a proper resurgence. It deserves its flowers. It deserves its accolades. And I think more people need to give it the flowers than it's due. I wouldn't say it's important to the mecha genre, but it's very important to me. On Twitter, I obsess a lot about Mahime and Symphogear, and I've been posting a lot about Godaner lately. The saying is that you never forget your first, and the reason why I've become obsessed with Mahime again is because it was my first magical girl show that wasn't named Sailor Moon. Full Metal Panic was my first exposure to the real robot genre. Interstellar 4-5 was the first anime that I rented off of Netflix back when they were still doing rental discs, and Godaner was my first super robot show, and there are some shows that you watch as a fan that don't hold up well to repeated viewing, or you still enjoy it, but you can also see all of the flaws within it. With Godanner, it gets better with every single subsequent watch. And I cannot recommend this show enough. I plan on doing a panel on overlooked anime of the 2000s, and you can bet your ass Godanner is going to be on there. Oh, absolutely. Like I said, this show deserves its flowers. Uh, and I think anime from that time period, we've had in the titles we reviewed, there's a sense of experimentalism from that period that hasn't necessarily aged well with a lot of titles. But Goldaner is far and above from the average of that time period. And I think considering how prolific DVD production and dubbing was at that time, Uh, and by all the different companies that were doing it that no longer exist, I think it's important that we remember the titles that weren't the big shonen titles that are still carrying on to this day, or have a legacy that's still carried on to in different franchises. Not everything needs to be focused on 
the big fights from the big bombastic titles. There was plenty of gold that you don't even have to dig too far to find. You don't have to look for a diamond in the rough. It's just there. It just... People need to be reminded of it. And especially if you do end up doing that panel and you include Goldanar, I think it'll definitely be a boon to its benefit. It definitely deserves its second round of applause and accolades. It's just a fantastic show. And much like you had said, and much like my personal experience was as well, each subsequent viewing got better. At the end of it all, Godanner is a wonderful, goofy, but ultimately sincere tribute to the super robots of yore, while also beautifully weaving in a story of love, romance, and the struggles that we face when facing both adulthood and strife on and off of the battlefield. Now, there are some people who will say that Gurren Lagann is the best mecha anime of the decade, and you know what? I think they're right. I do think that Gurren Lagann earns its title as being one of the, if not the best, mecha anime of the 2000s. Because Gurren Lagann is also a loving tribute to both Super Robots, to the works of Studio Gainax, and several other anime that inspired it. But four years earlier, AIC made their own tribute to Super Robots from the 70s and 80s that, in my eyes, is just as good, and while it may not be as big in terms of scale and popularity as Gurren Lagann, in terms of quality, it is definitely up there. It was my first introduction to Super Robots, and honestly, if you liked Gurren Lagann, then you will definitely enjoy Godanner. And if you want to watch it, you can watch it on High Dive, but if you don't want to fool around with that app as busted as it might be, you can mm -hmm. always get it on Blu-ray from Sentai Filmworks. And what's cool about this is that I own the DVDs, and the DVDs came with booklets that had interviews with the staff, cast, and theme song singers. Those booklets are included with the Blu-ray release, so get Wait, that if you, you can. Are you serious? They recreated the inserts? Yes, they did! Holy shit, that's amazing. That's one thing I really miss about the development of like physical media for over the years, is especially with like video games and the loss of additional content. It's so palpable. And the fact that Sentai went to the efforts to preserve it into this next generation, it's a testament to their work uh, in, the, in the industry. I adore that so much. And with that, we can finally conclude our Godana review. Just go out and watch it. This whole episode, as long as it was and as rambly as it was, was a work of passion. And after two bad shows back-to-back, -back, I think I had a right to vent about why I love this show so much. And if you were able to get to the end of the show, then please, give our show a like. Subscribe to us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, any place you get your podcasts from. You can follow me on social media on Facebook and Twitter at Otaku Nate Show. 
And you can follow me on Instagram at NateTendoWii, where I am usually posting photos of myself at sporting events, and I am currently learning how to become a timekeeper and stat keeper for the New Jersey Hitmen in the USPHL, as well as being an announcer and a DJ, so uh, you can expect me to sneak some anime songs in there too. Bronx, do you want to plug your stuff? Yeah, absolutely. If you want to keep up with me, particularly with my antics uh, as an illustrator and fan artist, you can hit me up at Bronx Kuma Art, both on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm also fairly active on Reddit as well, and you'll see me often posting memes uh, in one of the Poke Memes uh, forums and a couple other spots. So if that's your thing, you can definitely hit me up there. I also do more risque art if you're looking for something a bit more blue. And you can follow me at Naughty Grizzly Studios, both on Instagram and on Twitter. That being said, Nate, as always, it was fantastic being with you, especially getting the chance to review something so damn entertaining. It was glad to record with you, Bronx. And after such a long, passionate episode filled with hot-blooded super robot action and all kinds of suspense, big hits, and big tits, I think it's time that we come down a little bit for something a little more relaxing, something a little more chilled. And for this one, we once again go back to the well of Natsume Ono. Because next time on the Otaku Nate Show... We're going to look at the 2009 adaptation of Natsume Ono's one-shot manga series, Ristorante Paradiso. So until then, this is Otaku Nate. I'm Bronx Kuma. And we're signing off and saying, the final weapon is love! The third episode introduces all of the international pirates. Yeah, the pirates. <laughs> <laughs>